Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Those of you who know me best will know that today might be a difficult day for two reasons. One, it's Friday the 13th. I have an inbuilt hatred and mortal fear of Friday the 13th. And I have had it for many a long day. And also, it's Left Handers Day. It is. There is such a thing. It's International Left Handers Day. There'd be a lot of things I would do with my left hand. I write with my right hand, but I do a whole pile of other stuff with my left hand. I don't think that makes me a left-hander. Do you have to write with your left hand to actually be considered a left-hander? There's an interesting one. Anyway, come back to it later. And like I said, just bear with me during the morning because of this morbid fear that I have of Friday the 13th. They used to call it, I think, let me get this right, trisodecophobia is fear of the number 13. I hate it. So there. Good morning. At least the weather looks like it's picking up a little bit into next week. uh, And there's a a bit of an improvement on the way. And that's good news. Speaking of improvements, we hope against hope that we're getting there now. The, The numbers vaccinated are huge, which is great. We're at 77% now or 78% of the adult population vaccinated, which is about 61 62% of the entire population and we're up into the high 80s in terms of the number of people who've had a first dose of vaccine. We really are getting there and getting there quickly, which is great. And they've got something like 200,000 doses of vaccine a week coming in, which gives you confidence that we will get there. And our vaccine uptake is brilliant. Someone tweeted overnight that's all very very fine, but you've got 20% of people don't want to be vaccinated. That's absolute BS. The number of people in this country who are refusing to be vaccinated is in single figures. In single figures, and that's great. And that's great. But we are doing very, very well. Um, we were talking to Matt McGranahan yesterday about music events and when they might get back up and running. And my first guest this morning, regular guest on the programme over the last uh, 17, 18 months, has said during the week that in actual fact, Electric Picnic should have been allowed to go ahead. We know that it wasn't. We know that the local council there refused to grant it a licence. We know that they wanted to run it as either a fully vaccinated or a recently tested event. And Professor Luke O'Neill reckons it should have gone ahead. Luke, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How's it going? Good. Good to speak with you again. Wouldn't it have been a bit risky running something so big before we're at the magic number? There would be. It is a risk. Everything comes at a risk, doesn't it, PJ? Let's face it. But to be alive is to take risks, you know. And I think the um, the evidence behind this was quite strong to allow it to go ahead, you see. And remember, as you were just saying there, uh, when we get to the electric picnic, 90% of our adult population will be fully vaccinated, you know. 
Now, we're not going to get any better than that, probably, for various reasons. So we're then living in the living with COVID world. So are we saying we can never have music festivals? You know, so, so I think the case was quite strong. And I understand there's slight reluctance, 70,000 people in a field, you know, it, it might be, it might be slightly uneasy. But certainly, for example, um, there was a music festival in the UK, Latitude, with 40,000 people, and there wasn't a big surge in cases, you see. So, so that, 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 they were the arguments I made to say they really should have looked at this more closely, and I, I was in favour of it going ahead. Yeah. The, the local council, their argument for cancelling was that the well, public health policy at the time uh, didn't yeah. allow them to grant a licence. Could it, yeah, be re- could it be revisited, do you think? Well, that, that was a fair enough comment, let's face it. They had, they had to say, look, this is the advice, and, and that was fair enough because they, they would follow the advice, you know. They are revisiting it. I've heard uh, yesterday, actually, they're having another look at it, so you never know. I mean, I'm not sure. What do you think? It's unlikely, I guess. But, but certainly the music industry's on its knees. Around. The other reason is 3,000 people would have worked at that festival. They're not working, are they, you know? And as we know, the past year and a half, it's been torture for musicians and crew and all sorts of people have been unable to work, you see. So that's another reason to do it economically for people's livelihoods. That was a, that was a big reason to justify electric picnic going ahead. Yeah. The, talking to, to the industry, they were all geared up for it and they're just bitterly disappointed. And the hope is that by the time we get to the end of this year and into 2022, we can start to do stuff. Catherine Martin, I think the minister told them at a meeting during the week that once we cross 85%, they can start to move music back indoors. But of course, Electric Picnic was an outdoor event. So, it was, yeah. so the, lo- the logic is there. The logic yeah. is there. Look, exactly. I mentioned also in the introduction there, our vaccination uptake is really an example to the world, isn't it? Well, it's very proud. I mean, I, have, I said the other day, Paige, I haven't stopped smiling really, you know, because it's a superb response from the Irish people in the face of misinformation, remember, and all kinds of anxiety-provoking stuff you might read on social media. The Irish people have said, no, we're going to go for this, and it's a great response, isn't it? Especially in our young people. I mean, we have a 40% of our 18 to 25-year-olds now have had one shot, which is a great number because they they be ones that might be more reluctant for various reasons, you see. So in terms of Europe, top-tier performance, it's great. And then secondly, we're giving vaccine away, you may have seen, that this uh, UNICEF campaign, get a vaccine, give a vaccine. Yeah. 1.25 million of us have said, yes, I would give a vaccine to the developing world as well. So it's a double whammy, you know, in terms of our successes mm. there. It's tremendous. It seems to have worked very well for UNICEF. I'll be talking to them later on this morning that, you know, you get your vaccine and then you go home and you click on UNICEF and you give somebody else yep. a vaccine. And it, it's, right. it's a super idea. Great, fantastic idea. And Peter, the UNICEF guy, was on to me a couple of times over the last couple of months. I mean, great idea and massive response, isn't it? Superb. So Irish people, yet again, are, mm. are, are the example in many ways. We were taking the vaccine, first of all, to protect ourselves and our communities. And then secondly, we're helping the developing world as well. They're giving the vaccine away. So it's a great performance. Now, I guess it's not all uh, sunshine and flowers, Luke, because we, we had 1,900 cases yesterday, the highest number of daily cases since January. And even though the numbers in hospital is nothing like what it was in January, it's creeping up, as are the numbers in, in ICU. So we still have hospitalizations and we still have ICU so we, we need to, we need to get those daily case numbers down, don't we? Well, the case numbers become less important over time, Paige, if they don't translate into hospitalizations and severe disease. And that, that's what the vaccines do, remember. They're very yeah. good at stopping someone who might be infected, by the way, developing severe disease. The vaccines really protect us against that. So case numbers are going to become less important. And it wouldn't surprise me that stop that stop reading them out every night, you know, because eventually once it's under control, why would you kind of thing? But you're quite right, though. We're not there yet. 
very important to keep reminding people. It looks good, of course it does, we're in the right direction, but we're still in the thick of it in some ways. And those case numbers are a slight concern, it must be said, so we'll keep a close eye on them. Yeah, it's like, I mean, they'll probably go over 2,000 at the weekend. We, we'd have been in a lockdown if we had 2,000 a day yeah. in, previ- in, in previous waves. It's also, what is heartening is the number of people who are both catching COVID and ending up in hospital the vast majority of them are unvaccinated, which is more proof of proof for needed. Get yourself a vaccine. Yeah, exactly. And um, um, I, I knew this was coming, being an immunologist, I knew yeah. the vaccines would do this, you know. But of course, people that wouldn't be expert would be wondering, are the vaccines going to work? But now we have real world evidence. I mean, you're absolutely right. Globally at the moment, 80% of hospitalizations and severe disease are in the unvaccinated population. And then the 20% who are vaccinated, the symptoms they get are quite minor because they would have, might have sniffles in their nose and so on, you know, but the vaccine will stop their lungs getting damaged, you see. And, and talking about real world data, I mean, did you know there's 4.5 billion people now that have one shot of the vaccine so far in the world? That's it's a great number. Isn't it amazing? That's in nine months. I mean, it's the most amazing performance in many ways from yeah. our, from the, and the HSC deserve credit for you. Let's never forget to give them credit. They've rolled out a very effective vaccination campaign in Ireland. Have you any concerns about the level of breakthrough infection? Luke, because we know also, didn't the Centre for Disease Control, wasn't there a a, a fact sheet or it was an overhead projection or something that got leaked by the CDC the week before last that said actually people with a breakthrough infection are still very infectious themselves? They are. That's, that's, that's the concern, Fiji, because if you're vaccinated now, there's a risk of you getting infected. It'll be in your nose. It won't go to your lungs. You won't get sick. But then you might transmit to someone else. Mm-hmm. So the CDC have said masks back on. Sad. We're all sick to death of masks, aren't we? But, uh, but the CDC re- reversed its previous guideline to say no need for masks because of this fact. You know? And what that means is it'll be hard to get to herd immunity now, really, because there will be people walking around who are vaccinated with tiny bits of virus in them and then the virus keeps going. You know? Now, again, it's manageable if that person doesn't develop severe disease and that's what the situation is right now. Our, our last scientific worry, PG, as you know, is another variant coming along. Yeah, And remember, there's always a risk. It's very low risk. It's a random process. You can't really predict it. But it happens because the virus is dividing. And every time the virus divides, the next form might be slightly different, you see. And that's happening in developing countries most of all. Hence the need to get the vaccine out to those countries to stop the, any new variant coming along. Talk to me and a little I'm, bit about that. Lambda. I've heard it once or twice. No one seems to be saying much about it. What is Lambda? Should we be worried? Well, it's the dreaded the Greek alphabet. I'm sure you're a great man, PJ, for Greek letters, aren't you? We've got as far as lambda. So, um, in fact, there's iota. There's a few others in there as well, by the way. Uh, these are these are these new ones that are cropping up, and they're being examined closely. Lambda is the latest one. Um, in a lab, it does look as if it's less sort of able to be treated with antibodies. The immune system might be slightly impaired against it. Well, that's a lab-based study. We're not, we're not sure yet. It's called a variant of interest. They, they name them variant of interest to look at them. And then if they become worrisome, they're called variants of concern or VOCs. It hasn't got to a VOC yet, but they're examining it and it's one to keep an eye on. And again, very watchful. Yeah. And, and other variants will crop up. That's the nature of this virus. It does change. Yeah. Know? And of course, so if you did have something like... Lambda, the drunken H, wasn't it, from the Greek alphabet? That's right, yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) I did a bit of it in physics. Like, if you had something that becomes a a variant of concern, are we at the point now where the labs are going, okay, let's look at the vaccines and see what we can do? 
Exactly, yeah. They're, they're taking blood from people, basically, and testing it against Lambda in the lab and, and from vaccinated people, you know, and they've shown the decrease in efficacy in the antibody response there. So that's, that's, why, that's why it's listed at the moment as of interest. Now, that mm. mightn't translate into real life. It's a lab-based study, you know. So, again, they're watching that one very closely, and, and it makes sense. I mean, there is a way out of it. Remember, PJ, that the other good news is we can vaccinate against any variant with booster shots, yeah. you see. So, 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 in other words, this isn't... The, you know, a really worrying thing. It might set things back a bit. Yeah. Like this this is normal. This is normal virus biology, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Viruses are always changing. They're cunning things. <laughs> Their job is to survive as well, remember, and they try and dodge your immune system and they'll mutate, you know, and then try to dodge it. And yeah. this, this one, it's got a slow rate of mutation, mind you, compared to flu. Flu is at least five times more changeable, if you will. But the trouble is there's so much of it out there and it's dividing so much. It's like rolling the dice, you know, every time you roll the dice, you may end up with snake eyes in a sense, you know, hence the need, as I say, to, to get it under control. But the experts, the experts are on top of it and, and no need to worry about it at, at this point in time. With regard to the vaccination <laughs> program, and like you, so many, so many doses now are distributed around the world. And of course, when that happens, you will always get some side effects. We've had a caller on the phone wondering, would you have any concerns about vaccines in 12 to 15 year old boys, given some reported incidents of inflammation of the heart? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And in fact, the advice is to vaccinate that age group, really important. Uh, and this tiny number, there is evidence of that in a tiny number. But like the clots, remember the clotting yes. problem we have with AstraZeneca, for instance? It, it, it's like that. It's extremely rare. And it's, it's so rare that you don't worry about it kind of thing. Now, because it's unfortunate if it happens, they're not downplaying the seriousness of someone that happens to them, you know? Yeah. So it's extremely rare. And the advice from the HSE is it's so rare, no need to worry, please. 12 to 15 year olds should be vaccinated. And again, a great performance. Really over 60,000 now registered in that age group. So Paul Reid was on this morning, I heard him, he's delighted with himself because that's a good number to be registered in that age group. And then remember, PJ, there's over 4 million children have had the vaccine now in the US. And again, nothing to worry about. It's safe, efficacious. That's a great number of people you see to look at. So in other words, all the advice is the parents vaccinating that age group. And of course, the parents need to make their own minds up. They can go onto the HSE website, check out the facts for themselves, you know. But the mm. advice is to vaccinate that age group. And lastly and briefly, Luke, Israel at the very start of this, we spoke about it, was the poster boy for a vaccination programme. They're in trouble again. Should we be worried? Not really, no. I mean, again, the Israeli data is telling us that if you do get infected and you're vaccinated, it, it, the vaccine's protected from severe disease. Got part of the data has come from Israel in a sense, you know. But the Israelis are very bullish and they're, they're now embarking on a booster campaign for the over 60s because they are seeing these breakthroughs and they're a bit worried about them, you know. And it's just like, it's like um, you know, extra caution, I suppose, in a way. They decided to go for the booster shots. Okay. I, think, I think we will head in that direction. Most countries will give boosters okay. eventually. Once we get the developing world better vaccinated, then we can start using booster shots here. I think, to sum up, we're not there yet, but we're damn nearly getting there. Exactly. Yes, we're heading in the, still heading in the right direction, thankfully. So no, no backward steps so far. Let's hope it continues that way. Brilliant. Always good to catch up with you, Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity in Dublin. 1850 Let's go to a big international story, big international crime story that broke last evening. I have the dubious reputation, I might tell you the story someday, of nearly having knocked this guy down in a garage forecourt in Dublin. It's a long time ago now. Uh, I'll tell you afterwards. But he was arrested last night in Fingerola on the Costa del Sol, which is the last place you'd expect a well-known criminal to be because it's a place that's so popular with the Irish and everybody knows.
you know, everybody knows the Finger Roll is a huge place with the Irish. You can't exactly hide out there. Stephen Breen, good morning, Stephen, from the Irish, time, from the Irish Sun. Stephen, Jerry the Monk, tell us about him. And why would he do such a stupid thing as try to hide out in Fingerola? I have absolutely no idea and totally astounded at the fact that he has been found and arrested in Fingerola. Um, Jerry Hutch, uh, as you know, was the subject of a European arrest warrant. That related to the Regency Hotel incident in which Kennethan Cartel member David Byrne was shot dead in February uh, 2016. Since then, there have been no sightings of um, Hutch in Ireland. The last sighting was um, at his brother's funeral, Eddie, also in February 2016. But when news emerged in April of this year that uh, there was a European arrest warrant issued uh, for his arrest, that would ultimately raise uh, alarms, I imagine, for him. I, we all thought perhaps he would have gone somewhere like um, Eastern Europe or a country that didn't have an extradition um, alignment uh, with Ireland. But for him to be found in um, Fangarola, in a, a place that is very popular with, with Irish tourists, surely even though he is considered the master of the skies, he would have had a different identity. I'm sure you know, there are people from his native north inner city in Dublin who travel there, and people who would have recognised him immediately. And it's just a biggest relief why he went there and, and, and now that he's caught and he's, he's been apprehended in relation to this huge investigation into the Regency Hotel. Is it arrogance, Stephen, or stupidity? One of the two. I think it's a combination of, of both. Definitely. Um, you have this, this criminal godfather who's, who's been at the heart of organised crime in Ireland for 30 to 40 years. He's someone who's never served any serious time in prison. Um, he's been considered the mastermind behind numerous armed robberies over the years. He was, he's currently classified as the leader of the Hutch Organised Crime Group, and as your listeners will know, they have been involved in a very the feud, uh, yeah. lethal, lethal feud with the Kinnahan cartel, his one-time former associates. Um, I think in, before in 2015, he was someone who was perhaps heading towards retirement. He had made a huge payment of $1.2 million to the Criminal Assets Bureau, but then when his nephew... Is, um, is shot dead in September 2015, and then the, the, the Kinnan guy also tried to kill Jerry Hutch himself while he was in a bar in Lanzarote. It's no surprise that he's been caught up in this once again, and he now faces very serious charges. Because he did retire at one stage and actually moved to Lanzarote for a while, didn't he? He did. He'd spent time in Lanzarote, uh, Turkey as well, and he very close connections to uh, associates in the north uh, too. So he, he had retired. He had signalled his retirement from, you know, being involved in criminality for over 30 years. I mean, he'd made his payment that the tax bill to the Criminal Assets Bureau, but he did have a lot of money that he claimed to have earned from being a legitimate businessman, you know, uh, driving the, the limo service. And he did an interview in 2008 with, with RTA in which he said that you know, he denied these rumours against him. He denied that he was public enemy number one. But, you know, he has been under the radar until 2015 when, of course, his nephew was shot dead and, and, and that's when things went wrong for him. Listening to early morning reports about this, Stephen, and reading your own stuff, it's not like the guards will have an opportunity to sit this guy in front of them anytime soon. It could be months. Yeah, it could be months because the fact is a European arrest warrant has been issued for his arrest. That comes after the Guardian submitted a file to the Director of Public Prosecutions. The DPP then ruled there was enough evidence they maintained to charge him in connection with the Regency Hotel incident. 
So as a result of that, he faces a charge, so the Gardaí won't even be questioning him. Once he comes back to Ireland, he will be appearing before a court uh, straight away, so the charge, in effect, is live uh, as we speak. Um, for him, uh, he, he is in Spain at the moment. Um, uh, he will have to go through the judicial process in Spain, and that mm. would mean, is he going to contest the extradition warrant? Is he going to fight extradition back to Ireland? And if that, if that is the case... Like, could he get bail in Spain, time, Stephen? He could, but very unlikely due to the serious nature of the charges and due to his um, previous uh, connections to very senior figures in organised crime, there would be a serious concern that if he did get bail, he could abscond once again because I think the Spanish courts will take into account that he hasn't been seen in Ireland in, in five years. He's effectively been in exile. You know, and he has been keeping out of the Guardi's reach for quite some time, so that would be very un- unlikely, but the case could go on for a number of months and ultimately, once it goes through the Spanish judicial system, it will be up to a judge in Spain uh, to ultimately uh, declare whether or not he's being sent back to Ireland. Okay. All right, this is Stephen. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Stephen Breen, uh, crime correspondent of the Irish Sun, on the arrest of Jerry Hutch, the monk. I'll tell you the story. It's a few years ago now, quite a few years ago now. <clears throat> I was in Dublin for work uh, at the Doyle and I had a car with me. Thankfully it wasn't the news car. Thankfully it wasn't. I was driving my own car at the time. I have a friend who lives in Merino and I said could I give her a lift home from work? No problem with driving out. And I needed petrol in the car and I pulled into a petrol station I I think Ballybock that's the general area. Pulled into a petrol station in Ballybock. My friend went into the shop to get a bottle of water, whatever, and I was filling up the petrol and then paid my petrol, got back into the car. Friend sat in next to me and I went to reverse because there was a fella in front of me. So I went to reverse out of the place where, you you know, out from the pump. I banging on the roof of the car. So slammed on the brakes, waved out the window. Sorry about that. Drive on about your own business. And my friend is there with her head in her hands going, oh, Jesus, you didn't. You didn't. You clown, shishi. You just nearly knocked down the monk. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The facts on vaccines from Cork's 96FM. We hear a lot about the efficacy of vaccines. What does this mean? Vaccine efficacy is the percentage reduction of disease in a vaccinated group of people compared to an unvaccinated group in clinical trials. One common misunderstanding is that if a vaccine is reported to have 95% efficacy, that must mean only 5% of vaccinated people got sick. This is incorrect. What the 95% actually means is that in clinical trials of the vaccine, vaccinated people had a 95% lower risk of getting sick compared with the control group who weren't vaccinated. For information on COVID-19 vaccine, Visit the HSE website. Helping you through COVID. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96 FM. Couple of comments on Jerry Hutch. How much will it cost to get him back to Ireland? The protection he needs will be unreal. He definitely has enemies out to get him. You can say that again. On being left-handed, and it is left-handers day, the question I was asking, maybe we'll find out later, do you have to write with your left hand to be considered left-handed? I would do an awful lot of stuff with my left hand. For example, I'd always use a hammer 
with my left hander. I'd use a spanner with my left hander. But then I'd use a power tool requiring a bit of precision. I'd use that with my right hand. So, you know, it's it, anyway, uh, Eugene remembers in school, teachers would try to stop kids writing with their left hand. Oh, I remember that as well, Eugene. You'd get a, a rap on the knuckles from the teacher. But the brothers were devils for it. The brothers were devils for it. And that you'd be told that the devil wrote with his left hand. I always remember people have been told that. On COVID, Kate says, why do the GAA have so much pull and people are allowed at matches, but all under other industries like music and theatre are left behind, which is an excellent question. PJ, you said we're doing well. Did you not see yesterday's figures? 1,900 not doing too well, I'm afraid. Well, 1,900 is not good. Let's, yeah, 1,900 is not good. But the proportion of them ending up in hospital and the proportion of them ending up seriously ill is tiny compared to what it was back the last time we had numbers like that in January when we were in serious trouble. And as Luke O'Neill said, the number of vaccinations is so big now that really anyone getting it who's been vaccinated, it's a mild illness. And anyone, who most of the people suffering now and being diagnosed now are not vaccinated. So the more people we get vaccinated, the way th- those cases will level out and come down. But we're nowhere near the end of this in terms of cases yet, which is which is true. And thank you for that. 1850-715-996. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Right, just a few days left. We close the poll on this Monday, the 16th. Go into the Cork's 96 FM website and look at the categories and you can vote for whomever you wish. Like if you're looking for best gym, you would decide between MT Fitness, District Health and Leisure, EMF Lifting and Laughing, Keto Gym Glenmire or Fit Gym. And if you were looking to vote for the best, where are we going this time? Beauty Salon. Yes, you would look at Guilty Hair and Beauty or Miraki or Makeup by Laura, or Image Beauty, or Essence of Beauty. Go into the 96FM website, 96FM.ie. You'll find the awards section. You'll find the shortlists and cast your vote. You've got from now until Monday to do it. The best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12-month guarantee all backed by Board Gosh Energy. The awards presented by Cork's 96FM. Back in March, we were reporting about antisocial behaviour in Crosshaven. It was highlighted by Councillor Audrey Buckley, who warned us at the time that gangs of youths were on their way to Crosshaven on the 220 bus, which is, of course, uh, 24 hours now. And back in March, you'll remember we had some gorgeous weather around Patrick's Day. Some unseasonal, it'd be nice weather around St. Patrick's Day. And it brought huge crowds to uh, Crosshaven and brought litter and it brought a bit of antisocial behaviour, etc., etc. And at the time, Audrey Buckley said that with a summer of staycations ahead, uh, the locals were worried. And she spoke at the time with the superintendent in Toker, John DC. Now we've had more reports this week of, of troublesome youths gathering in groups in Crosshaven. And a, a local TD, Donna has been in contact with the chief superintendent looking for something to be done. But Audrey, it appears no one listened back in March. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Um, 
Yeah, look, I, I think, to be honest, um, the incidents back in um, uh, kind of May, June here with the nice weather and um, the many teenagers coming down here with the litter, etc., it's kind of, this is different incidents. This would be more um, older, like uh, younger, like maybe 17 to kind of early 20-year-olds. Right. Um, so I actually haven't seen any of the incidents, but I have heard about them because being a new councillor, I, I do get calls and texts on it. Mm-hmm. The um, kind of things I, are happening. It, yes, there is things happening, definitely. Um, and now I think, think the heading of war zone, I, I wouldn't be mad about um, that word. Um, I'm This is my home. I live in Crosshaven like many others, and we don't like hearing or seeing that mm. heading. Um, no, that's not an acceptable heading. No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I, you know, this is my home. As I said, I have a family here. All my family live here, and I don't like seeing that. And I don't think it's a war zone. Yes, I do think there's been incidents around. Um, what I've been calling for, and many others, um, we have a fantastic guard station, perfectly in use here in the Crosshaven area. And what we want to see is community policing for these four months of the summer. I think if we have presence on the ground, guard walking around, having a chat with people, like when we were growing up, PJ, <laughs> you know, mm. um, I think it would deter a lot of this kind of element. I mean, you're talking probably 99% of the people are coming down here and they're behaving themselves. It's that 1% element. Um, Which, to be fair, you'll get them everywhere. You will get them everywhere. Um, the incidents, you see, we wouldn't have seen these kind of incidents before, I think. Um, I think staycationing has brought it to a new height. Like, yes, I heard um, down the village, um, like Friday night was chaotic down the village with drinking. I know last week in Fenwick Bay, um, a resident uh, came upon at 10 o'clock at night, I think it was, of a young girl on the ground being kicked by other youngsters. Um, they stopped because um, they were shock and horror and they told them get off her um, they were from town, they were they all ran to get the bus. Our issue is here when you call the guys um, you know, we're, you know, it's probably from Toker that they're coming from mm. so you're talking an hour away Yeah, I know where exactly where the guard station is in Crosshaven Audrey yeah. and it's a grand little station yeah. for, a, for a village or a town of its size, yeah. but how many guards are there, when is it open like is there a permanently based guard in Crosshaven? So I was told that there were two guards there, but they're not community policing. I think in about 2017, when they came in with all these new measures in place and how to divvy up and and have uh, the guards doing different um, locations and, and different jobs, the guards that we have in Crosshaven are not community police guards. Our community police guards are in Cargilline. Um, I think there's two allocated to the cargo line. This is the whole cargo line in the area, and that's when they're working. Yeah. So, but, but is the station actually open? Does it have um, public I hours? I never. No, I would never. If I was getting a passport or something signed, I would go to Toker because I know Toker is open. Um, Crosshaven, I don't think it is open for that. Um, I, you ring there when you don't get any answer. The phone would go automatically to Toker. Right. Um, and Cargoline, um, look, they're having their own issues. It is open during the, the week um, days at certain hours. That's when they have staff. Uh, the whole issue here is that there is a shortage of staff. Yeah. Um, I, I heard, um, so uh, I, I was talking to Minister Michael McGrath, and he did mention that um, there is um, new guards coming out of Temple Moor. 
Um, I think around 450. Now, I don't know where they're going to be allocated for. Um, we're asking for a very simple solution here. We're asking for community policing at least four months of the year to be stationed in the Crosshaven area. Mm. Um, and I think this this is just not happening in Crosshaven. This is happening in other towns and communities. Like, there is, you know? I know, there is something wrong, Audrey, isn't there? When you have a place like Crosshaven, what, what's the population roughly? The About permanent? three and a half thousand. Oh, right, three and a half thousand, and it has a guard station. And you, as a local councillor would drive past that Garda station to get something done or to report something because it's never open. That's, no. that's daft. Yeah. Absolutely daft. I don't understand it and I have asked for it. When we were growing up here as children, like we had the Majorca, we had many people down here for the summers. It was fantastic. But we would have had at least three full-time guards stationed in the Crosshaven Garda station. Yeah. That would be walking around. You would know them. Um, and they were, you know, it was great for the residents because there was no intimidation there because you would know that the guards were walking around. What's happening here is we have, you know, on Monday night, there were streams of young fellas down from the Douglas area, apparently, and, um, you know, one of them got into, you know, was quite drunk. The guards were trying to arrest him. I mean, his buddies apparently were trying to take him back from the guards. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, there's no respect there. Um, I don't think the enforcement goes far enough. Mm. Um, and it's very intimidating. And I can see where that person who called Crosshaven a war zone, I mean, if you're going to be coming upon an instance like that, of course you're going to be scared. I mean, this happened at 8 and 9 o'clock at night when there's kids around and the chipper is there. And, you know, it's a family area. Mm. So we don't want that kind of intimidation around her because yeah. we live here. This is our home. Yeah. Like if you had a resort the size of Crosshaven in Spain, yeah. the thought that there wouldn't be a, a Guardia Civil or a member of the Policia Locale at least moseying yeah. around the main square in the evening with the chippers of the pubs open would never occur. No. No, we need more community support um, and I think that's not a big ask you know, to, to ask for. And I think since, you know, we've been reporting these incidents and that's another issue. I, do, I don't think people are picking up the phone and actually calling the guards because they feel, well, there's nobody... What's in the Scotland. point? They're in Toker. What's the point? But we need to pick up the phone and call the guards because there'll be a record. And when we are demanding and looking for more um, community policing in the area, at least in Dublin, where they're handing out these new um, recruits from Templemore, they will look at the statistics and say, yeah, look, there seems to be an issue here um, at these this time of year down in this area maybe we'll you know assign some here and assign some there so people do need to pick up the phone I was told because we need to get um, a log of, of all these calls yeah. so that in Dublin who are, are they, they don't know us down here they haven't been in the area they don't see what's going on see, see Audrey I, I just step in there a second right why does it take all of that because we have local Garda management, senior experienced local Garda management, who know Crosshaven, Myrtleville, Fountainstown, Fennels Bay, Gravel. They know that area. They know it like the back of their hands. Many of them were stationed there before they got, or in the general area, before they got promoted up the stairs. So it doesn't take the people at Crosshaven or anywhere like that to let Dublin know. Local management can let yeah. Dublin know. 
and, and I'd say local management's hands, maybe it's tied. I mean, I have spoken a lot to John DC, and he was very good back in June. You know, you were falling over guards here. They were everywhere. Um, and they were talking to people. They were walking around and talking like, you know, the old days, and it worked really well. So what but happened? Lack of, resources, lack of resources, I'd say. I yeah. mean, they, the, the guards need their holidays as well. I mean, they've had it hard with COVID, so they just don't have enough staff probably to cover. I heard more civil staff hopefully will be hired in the guard stations. The guards have a lot of paperwork, apparently. So when they're not out walking in the street, they're in the office probably doing paperwork. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Audrey, thank you very much. And here's hoping that something gets done about it soon. That's Councillor Audrey Buckley based in Crosshaven. I am not for a moment here laying the blame at the foot of the individual guards. There's not enough of them, and they've not been properly spread out. But take my point, if you don't believe me, take my point. There's a place in uh, Mallorca which reminds me a little bit, now that I think about it, about uh, like Crosshaven. It's around the same size, with around the same permanent population, three or four or five thousand permanent population, a place called Palenza. It's, it's a drive out beyond Alcudia, out the coast there. Lovely place. Middle of summer, it's busy, right? But I tell you something, you watch the local main square there at night time. And at least once an hour, the squad car drives around, just mooching, just watching for trouble. And in a place like Crosshaven, in the middle of summer, with the pubs open again, the chipper opens, everything, it is stupid and ridiculous that there isn't a guard, the car patrolling that square at least once an hour. And local management, and I'm looking at you, local management know that that's the story, and it's their gig to make it happen. Please tell me I'm wrong if you can. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Douglas Court Shopping Centre. They've got everything you need and more. Visit douglascourt.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 396 96 On Cork's 96 FM. Some comments on Crosshaven, which I'll get to. Uh, caller says it's not only Crosshaven. There's very bad behaviour happening in another area, much closer to the city. And also, young people just don't care about the guards. We've seen it in the city. They'll never gather in their own area, and they know there are no consequences. They'll give false names and addresses. But Bernie says, why are we giving out about the guards? They didn't give birth to these children. It's the parents who need to be punished. Well, maybe, Bernie, if we had more guards, you could round up the troublemakers and split up the troublemakers and maybe avert the trouble is the point that people are making. 1850-715-996. The Samaritans, 116123. 50 years they've been around now and they've been in Cork for most, if not all, of that time. Uh, their new director... 
well, recently installed director here in Cork, a man called Jonathan Neville, and he joins me. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How, how old is the, the Cork Samaritans? Well, we're actually going to be 50 years uh, next year. Good. And, uh, and the Belfast branch was, is our 60 years this year, and last year at Dublin were 50 years. So we're, we're, we've been in Ireland quite a long time now at this stage, quietly doing our good work. What's the history of the organisation, briefly? Uh, we were founded by a vicar in the UK called Chad Vara. Um, he, he became distressed when a young girl of around 13, I think, that took her own life back in the, those early days. So he set up a kind of a listening service. And he found that by when he was helping people, that people were talking to the receptionists more than they were talking to him. And th- that's how the Samaritans were found, basically, as a helpline. And it went from there to strength to strength. And the principle of the Samaritans is that we listen don't yes, advise. Sir. Now, explain the difference. You're not an advice service. No, we're not, no. Um, I think in many ways in Ireland, we, 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 we listen to give advice. But in, in, uh, all we do is we just listen. And it, that in itself is a very powerful tool and takes a bit of learning to get used to it. Because um, people that ring us are so generally so delighted that we just listen and we don't tell them what to do. If someone asks you what you think I should do, what do you say? Well, well, we have a method and we, we, we kind of reflect the question back to them, you know. We, we, we ask them what, the, what they, they should think they, they should do. Right. Right. It sounds like very skillful work. It is, yeah. We, we, we've, we, we train all our volunteers. Um, it's usually about over 10 weeks and then you're mentored um, for a couple of weeks after that uh, with a fellow volunteer. Like we, we always, um, volunteers are always in pairs because we never kind of do a call on our own. There's always a volunteer beside you oh. on a call as well, a separate call, you know. So we're very much about supporting each other either during the calls and after the calls. And how are you fix your volunteers at the moment? Yeah, thankfully in Cork we've about 180, but we always need more um, because it, 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 the, our lines are getting busier. And if people are ever interested, they just need to contact us, you know, and yeah. we'll be starting training again in the autumn. Are you at your full capacity, no? Uh, we, we, we always need more volunteers. You know, the more volunteers we have, the more people we can have on the lines, basically. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. Was lockdown tough? I mean, did you lose volunteers during the lockdown or did you just have more work for them? Uh, it's a bit of both. Uh, lots of volunteers of all ages, right up to their 80s, kept coming into the branch right through the height of the lockdown way back in March. Now, some of them had to cocoon here and there for obvious reasons, but our volunteers, I have to say, they're very much unsung heroes for that time because they came in, they did their duties, you know, passed all the gather checkpoints and full credit to all of them. I'm really proud of them all. Yeah. They do, three, is it three shifts a month you ask people to do? Three shifts a month, yes. Uh, two, what we call two daylight hour shifts and one overnight shift. Um, we, we're, we're, Cork is one of the two branches in the Republic that are open all the time. So like at four o'clock in the morning we have volunteers in Coach Street answering the phones. You know, so. I see sitting, physically sitting there like rather than being diverted to it. They're not working from home as it were. No, no, we never work from home. We, we always work in the branch because again, as I mentioned, we, we, we believe in supporting each other. It's very important that we support each other because some of the calls we get can be hard going. Yeah, so. I'd say I'd say some of the stuff that you hear at the end of the telephone can be troubling. To, I mean, you, you trained as a psychotherapist as, as well as your day job, but you're, you're in IT. Yes. But I'd say some of, the, some of the stuff that volunteers would listen to would be difficult. It can be, yes. But we're, we're, we're well trained and we, we all always debrief afterwards because it's important that you do that. Because when you leave the branch, as we say, you don't bring the cards with you. You leave them in the branch, you know. 
Yeah, that's yeah. how we approach it. There's a, you reckon as well that there's a skill among volunteers that we could all use in our daily lives in terms of listening. And again, in troubled times, I guess when we're all, you know, people, all be, we can all be a bit flat at times. The skill of listening. Talk to me briefly about that. Yeah, it, it's actually easier than it sounds sometimes, I think. But it, it just takes practice. You just got to listen and and uh, kind of resist the urge to kind of give advice. Because I, I just think it comes naturally to us over in Ireland. We just want to give advice and, and help and console them and tell them it'll be okay or, you know, suck it up and so on. Really, by just listening and get them to engage more and talk about how they feel, that's really the best approach to go with it. Yeah. I think you have a volunteer at the moment doing... Uh a bit of a marathon run. What's that? Yeah, there's a guy called David Matthews. He's been busy walking to all the Samaritan branches in the UK and Ireland. And he's just he's just done most of it. He's done all the UK and he just landed in Dublin there about a week ago and he's up and around Belfast direction. He's due in Cork around middle, middle of September. So we hope to give him a hearty welcome when he gets down here. Excellent, excellent. Like you say, you're always looking for, for more volunteers. How would Absolutely. one get involved or how would one... Go, you know, put oneself forward if you want to. Yes, uh, well, they can email recruitment at Cork That's recruitment at Cork or they can apply to join uh, through our, our website. And Let, yeah, and well, everyone's welcome of all ages, all experience. You know, you don't need to be a psychotherapist. Anyone's welcome. Yeah. Lastly, there was a rather disturbing story uh, in the UK in the last week or so. I'm reading here from a BBC. Uh, news website, but it it broke, I think, in the Daily Telegraph, where yes, yes. the Samaritans had sacked a number of volunteers after they were using their position to meet up with vulnerable female callers for sex. Yeah. Like, God Almighty, Jonathan, you'd hope against hope nothing like that could happen here. No, I know. Those reports are related to the UK, but also they were, they were slightly incorrect. Uh, the Samaritans have been taking a proactive action for safeguarding, and that's very much something we've been ahead of in Ireland for quite a long time. Yeah. What, 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 what safeguards are in place? Like, uh, Well, uh, you know, the Children First Act is in Ireland for quite a while now, so, for example, if anyone is uh, vulnerable, we, we have to report it to Tulsa and so on. You know? oh, really? um, you know, it's very You're important. mandatory reporters, are you? Yes, we have to. Yes. Well, everyone has to be. You know, yeah. everyone has to be in Ireland. It's, it's, it's by law. Right, right. So you wouldn't think that anything like what happened in the UK could happen here? You know, when I, people I read a story never. like this in their newspaper, yeah. they think, you know... Yeah, indeed, I know. And, and they, they can be hard stories to, to read, but actually what the story was really about is that the, the Samaritans are being proactive into preventing these things happening. Mm. Okay. So, come back to it. It's 116... One, two, three, Jonathan, and that's, is that free? That's free, yes, um, and it, it, it's free from everything, including mobile phones, and it won't even show up on your mobile phone, though, and you can ring us any time of the day, and people, and like, people often don't think that, that their problems are not worthy to bring Samaritans, but everything is yeah. worthy, like, you know, people should bring us any time they feel like it. There's nothing you won't listen about. There's nothing you want to listen to. Right? Absolutely not. We listen to anything. And, and that call, obviously, you know, some people could be a bit stuck and a bit tight for cash. They'd be worried about using phone credit. Does that number use phone credit? No, it's totally free. Totally free. And is there, are there other ways to contact you? Yes, uh, you can also email us at joe at samaritans.ie. Okay. Um, normally, we, we would be open in our branch on Coach Street, but unfortunately, we have to close. It kind of broke our hearts to close our doors, but we hope to open towards the end of the year again. Okay, so it's just volunteers in, in and out of it now, yeah? 
just want us at the moment, yes. All right, okay. And if anyone wants to volunteer, they can they can come forward to do so. One one six one two three. That's from any phone, anytime, anywhere in the country. Absolutely. Thank you. And one last thing, Jonathan. You know the way if I mean like people would always be terrified that the person on the end of the phone would know them. Yes, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, that that really happens um, because, like, when you ring the Samaritans, you won't necessarily get Cork, for example. You That's exactly a, a, what I was asking. Yeah, yeah, you, you can get Sligo, Waterford's open. You know, right. it, it depends. You'll get a volunteer. I, I've never, yeah, you will. Yes, and it, it, I, I heard about happening once, uh, but that's someone who knew somebody. But that was like four or five years ago. But. The, the person on the call never let it through, you know, they never let, let them know they knew who they were. But it really, it really, really happens. Okay. All right. Listen, uh, congratulations on the work that you do and continue to do in Cork, you and the Samaritans, a fabulous organization, contactable around the clock from any phone, from anywhere at any time. 116123. Just to listen to you. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, there's a fierce excitement now building up for Cork versus Limerick in the All-Ireland Hurling Final Sunday week. Air a chance of a ticket. <laughs> Don't be asking anybody that. There'll be a few people at the match. I think it was at 40,000 or something they can have for the All-Ireland Final. But the chances of a ticket now, I'd say, slim at best. But here at Cork's 96FM, we're doing our bit to get behind the All-Ireland Hurling finalists. And we want you to help us out. What we want you to do is show your support for the hurlers. Decorate your house. Decorate your business. Get out the red and white flags. Get out the red and white bunting. Get creative. Paint stuff red, whatever. Paint the dog red, whatever you want to do. Get creative and then take a picture of what you've done and send us a WhatsApp photo. And we've got 500 euro for the best house and 500 euro for the best business. And we'll announce the winners next Thursday evening. So WhatsApp in your pictures, 083 396-96-96-083-396-96-96 Get the house decorated. Get the business decorated. Put a cork jersey on the dog. Something. And check us out online to see some of the pictures as well. 083-396-96-96 Get going, cork. Get creative. The cost of property continues to go up. And up and up and up. The Irish Permanent is reporting today that house prices went up by almost 7% on average across the state in June, just in one month. It's the fastest rate of property price rise in three years, and prices have now been going up for 10 months in a row. These are figures from the Central Statistics Office. Also, uh, that's in the Independent. The Examiner's done a very handy table uh, the 10 of the most expensive areas to buy a house in Ireland are in Dublin. But in Munster, all 10 of the most costly places in Munster 
are all in County Cork. Kinsale is up there. The average house price in Kinsale, 345000 but it's not the dearest. Ballancolig, 335 Carrigaline, 314 South side of the city, 305 Middleton, 280 Clonakilty, 295 I wonder, can anybody guess the most expensive place in Cork to presently buy a house where the average is 392500 But the prices continue to go up. Charlie Weston, personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. Charlie, this is not getting better anytime soon. In fact, if anything, it's going to get worse. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. There's a chronic, chronic shortage of properties to buy, whether they're new builds or second-hand uh, homes. So that's feeding price rises. You also have demand, very strong demand, from people who are, you know, forming uh, household formation, as they call it. You know, people who want to strike out and buy a home, or else um, you're also seeing people wanting to move because they've built up some savings from working at home. They've saved money on commuting and, um, you know, not going on foreign holidays, that sort of thing. And then you have this move as well, PJ, which we're seeing, where people are moving out of um, urban areas, the likes of Cork um, and Dublin, and moving to more rural areas. So we've seen crazy increases in the border counties and in the Midlands. Uh, As you say, across the state, prices are up 7% in June. But if you look at the border, they're up 14% in the border, you know, Cavan, Monaghan, that kind of an area. Mm. And in the Midlands, they're up 10.4%, you know. So the prices are cheaper in those places and there's a bit of catch-up going on. But that's kind of, that seems to reflect people buying, um, you know, a bigger house outside of the selling what they have in in a city or suburb of a city and moving to a larger rural location to work from home. When I see the most costly market in County Cork, which I haven't named yet for listeners, I'm thinking, really? I would have said Kinsale, but yeah. this one this one is, is, is higher. I'm holding it to myself for the moment. What is the problem, Charlie? Are we simply not building enough? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's certainly one of the main things. I mean, we're probably we'll have about 20,000 uh, uni- new units this year. A lot of those will be apartments uh, in, 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 in urban areas, mainly Dublin. Um, and some, some of those are self-builds, which are not available in the market, obviously. Um, so that's certainly a problem. And, you know, we have a report yesterday from the housing economist Ronan Lyons, Trinity Academic. Mm. Um, he wrote a piece for the, um, the uh, property lobby group and um, he's saying, look, we need 50,000 euro, sorry, 50,000 homes need to be built every year up to 2050. And that's just to meet demographic needs. He did that report for the Irish Institutional Property Group, uh, which is just a lobby group for, for property players, you know. Um, but um, so, so we're not building enough. Yeah, that's part of the problem. There's, there's very strong demand as well. And then, you know, you had COVID interruptions to the building trade. I mean, and, you know, there was a lockdown in building until early in the year, so that interrupted uh, what, what they were trying to do. Um, th- th- it also takes forever to get um, planning permission. So we just have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, mm. what, what we're calling the independent, I'm quoting somebody, uh, calling it a perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, of, of, Have we a shortage of skilled workers too? Are many of our most skilled construction workers overseas? 
Yeah, that's an issue, certainly an issue, because, you know, there's a number of issues. Like, I mean, we don't have builders of scale in this country. We have two big builders, Glenvey and Cairn. They're both stock market companies. Uh, they, they they build houses, but, you know, they don't even build huge amounts. Um, we, 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 we have a lot of small-scale builders. They're not very well financed because banks don't want to fund them, so it's difficulty for getting funding. So you find that even the big builders are getting funding through these cuckoo funds, you know, with these yeah. investment funds putting money up. So and they only want apartments. Uh, you, you, you have a lack of investment uh, over the years, lack of scale. Raw materials prices are going up, and then you have, as you say, there's a shortage of skills. Some of these. Um, Skilled people are just not there. They're not coming in from other EU countries at the moment because of COVID. Uh, and some of the skilled people have left, you know. So, yeah, there's a whole whole collection of myriad of myriad reasons why we're in the mess that we're in. And it's going to be a while before it resolves itself. Have you any ideas how we might start to get ourselves out of it? I think it's just going to take time. You know, um, I think there's no magic wand. The government are going to bring out their Housing for All strategy document next month. Um it, it will have a few tweaks and encouragements and this, that and the other. I don't think there's any magic wand that they can wave. Nobody has any particular, you know, everybody has different little tweaks you can do here and there, but it's just going to take time to get out of this mess. We're just going to have to start. Local authorities will have to build more affordable housing and social housing. I mentioned this to you before, Charlie, back in, in the time, before my time, and I assume before yours, in, in, in the days of, of Sean Lamass, where where he built, or the local authorities built tens of thousands of houses and they actually built the houses like they didn't farm it out to a builder it, they built the houses they had the staff they had the engineers and they did the work and it, that worked for Lamas back then I think that's a kind of a state building program that we really should start looking to do could we do it again? Well, we don't have the skills within the local authorities. They've let, they don't have bricklayers on, on, on the books anymore. They don't have carpenters. We left them all go. They're all gone. You know, that, that's long since to be... Is it time we could hire them again? Should we hire them again? Well, local authorities don't operate that way because they don't see that they have a skill set to, to... You know, they'll do the overall project management, but they'll get in a contractor yeah. uh, who then gets subcontractors. You know, that kind of way. Yeah. Uh, like there's a, and a every local, time you do that, the profit goes up. Well, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, this is this is what's... what's every contractor needs a profit, get. every subby needs a profit, every, you know... Yeah, they do, and, you know, um, and, and, and the, 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 whoever's got the, the, the contract wants, you know, they're going to sell half the houses probably the way they work generally. They want half the houses to sell privately. They'll then offer uh, 30% social and 20% uh, affordable or, you know, 20, 30, but that might be reversed. That's the way that the kind of deals they're doing at the moment, um, you know, and, and, and the, the local authority provides the land, gets in a contractor, a big, somebody like Glen Bay or Kern, to, to build the houses, but, you know, half of them are sold on the market. So, yeah, on the other hand, do you want 100% social housing and affordable housing? On, on You know, you want a mix. Um, so, it, you know, that old-fashioned idea that the, the council would directly build themselves with their own employees, that's not, that's not coming back anytime soon because no. they just don't have those it, people. It worked before, but you just, they disbanded it and it's very hard to do it again. That's it, yeah. I mean, you're trying to get the toothpaste back into the, the, the tube and, it, you know, it's it, it, that would take a very, very long time. Or, you know, I, I think we should be trying to encourage builders in Britain in, in, in here as well because these guys are bigger, they can build at scale. You know, there's a couple of very big builders in Britain, Barrett and... Um, 
uh, Persimmon and Taylor, Wimpy, these kind of people, um, you, you know, and, 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 and modular housing, housing that's built off site yeah. and, and, and brought to the site, which can be assembled in days, yes, you know. Yes. Uh, I've seen that, that. There's some incredible projects around the world built that way. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know, once the land, and there, there are planning permissions there. I mean, there's something like 40,000 planning permissions in the system. Uh, you know, local authorities have land, you know, just, just declare an emergency and, and decide. These, these are some of the ways we're going to do it and, well, and, and try and clear it that way. But if you look at the way we could change law and change practices overnight for no. a public health emergency like COVID, if we declared a, a state of emergency in housing, it does allow you to make radical change. It does, but it's also unpopular because you get, you know, the existing homeowners don't want uh, a council to come in in their area and decide, right, we're putting so many, so many houses here. You know, because what you get, tend to get is areas with good representation will, will make sure that the houses go somewhere else, and that's always what happens, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know the government going to do that, but, I mean, it, it would take something like that, a national emergency to be, de- to be declared and a fair distribution of housing in every area to make sure we catch up here. I mean, I mean, if that estimate is right, 50,000 houses a year for up to 2050, you know, we, we, we're nowhere near going to get that. Get to that. We'll get uh, to 20 this year. Um, yeah, 20 is just way below that, you know. Yeah. And this is why you're getting these crazy bidding wars, you know. If, if, if you know, houses go and go onto online auction sites and, they go up by huge amounts every day. I mean, it's just absolutely madness. And we're doing again what we did back in the in the, in the middle noughties, where stuff is being bought, houses are changing hands for vastly more than they're worth. That's it, exactly. You know, we, we it's the definition of madness, isn't it, PJ? We're repeating the same mistake again and again. Um, yeah, we're seeing nuts uh, valuations being put on houses now. Uh, you know, you know, and the old tricks are back as well. People think they have a, a deal agreed oh. to buy a house to put down a deposit. Uh, they have their money in place from the bank, their mortgage. And they uh, get a call. They get a call saying, you know, just maybe a couple of weeks or a month or two in saying, oh, we're going to put it back in the market unless you come up with another €10,000. This yeah. kind of nonsense. Or there's a, there's a bid in for 20 grand more than you're putting in. You never get to see that bid. You don't even know it's there. Yeah, yeah, the dirty tricks are back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, 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 so we fail to regulate that kind of nonsense, that, that gazumping, that outrageous behaviour where people think they're on the cusp of buying something and it's snatched from them just at the last minute. So, you know, that, that we're back to all that dirty, dirty tricks, that awful stuff happening that, yeah. and, and mad, crazy house price increases, unfortunately. Really unfortunate situation. Thank you very much. Charlie Weston, uh, personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. I, I won't tell you uh, yes, where you think that is. You could probably find the list, I suppose, if you go looking for the paper. But, so, the mo- of the 10 highest priced markets in Munster, they're all in Cork. So, Glenmire, average price, 310,000. Carrigaline, 314. Carrig Navarre, 321. Ballancolig 3.35 Kinsale 3.45 Not the highest I thought Kinsale would be the highest Not the highest Would you care to guess? Just guess Would you care to guess? I'll, I'll tell you shortly I won't keep you guessing all morning but Would you care to guess where are the most expensive place in Munster now and in the whole of Cork City and County to buy a house? 1850 While you're doing that, do you ever eat seaweed? Would you eat seaweed?
Talk about that next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Stormzy is getting his own waxwork in Madame Tussauds. Is that like the UK's equivalent of the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Probably will be. For them to actually give you a space you're in a the waxwork. You're, you're, you're kind of like, you're important enough that people want to get photographs taken next to a giant candle made out of you. Exactly. <laughs> That's what they should do, put a little wick on the top of each, each waxwork's head and flog it for Well, a Joe Wick should definitely get one. <laughs> yeah. Casey and Ross in the morning with no DC cars Blackpool for Skoda in the city. A long-standing tradition in Cork. Open 24-7 at nildc.com. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. On our holidays one day, we were driving back to, to the house and there was a sign up in a garden uh, that they had um, Dillisk for sale. I said, yes, I might pop in there and get a bit of Dillisk. And the missus says to me, what's Dillisk? And it's kind of a seaweed, uh, and you can eat it, and they make kind of crisps out of it. And did you know there are 12 types of seaweed in Ireland that you could eat or put into dishes rather than just eating it themselves? I, I would never have gotten to 12. I could have figured there were maybe two or three, but never have gotten to 12. Marie Power, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. We we don't realise the riches that are on the the seabed or that are on the shoreline when the tide goes out, do we? Uh, we don't, but we are certainly a lot closer to it than we were maybe even 10 years ago. Um, and when I was a child, uh, not today or yesterday, we would have, people living along the coast uh, would certainly have known about Dillisk, Carrageen, Moss, Slocan. Uh, there would have been, I think those would have been the three kind of staples, if you like, um, for coastal people. But inland, no, I don't think there was great knowledge. Um, and then something happened in Ireland in around 1980, and we kind of turned our back on all that stuff, and we started looking to more exotic locations for our food. And we've come back, and I would say in the last 15 years, when I've kind of come back to this, um, I've just seen it, you've seen the, the knowledge increase, you know, whereas 15 years ago people would say exactly as you were saying in your intro, you know, you don't eat seaweed, do you? I mean, you don't actually eat it. Whereas now people will say, and which one would you use for soup? And which one would you put into a curry and all of that? So mm. definitely the interest has grown and the knowledge has grown. Um, some of it because we've travelled to Asia, you know, and brought the ideas yes. back from there. Because they use it a lot in, in Japan where they call it sea vegetables. That's right, yeah. Uh, the Japanese, the Koreans, uh, China, all of those countries eat Pacific Ocean uh, seaweeds, some of which have Atlantic Ocean kind of cousins, if you like, um, that we'd be familiar with. Um, so, for example, our Slocan, and I know I'm from Waterford. Slocan is a new one on me, I must say. Um, it's called by different names, but you'll have heard probably of Nari. Yeah. Yeah, and you know the nice sushi sheets and so on. And Nari is just a Pacific Ocean version of Slough Con. But along the waterverse, Cork, 
south coast of Ireland, it's uh, and Kerry as well, it's called Slocan, but in the north of Ireland it's called Sloke, that's the English word for it. Right. Uh, so, um, and in Wales they call it Laver. So there's different local names right. um, uh, and that, but you definitely know the seaweed. If, you, you, if you've seen it growing, um, if you've seen it on the rocks, like you, you've, um, or sorry, if you've been to the rocks, you'll definitely have seen it grow there. Yeah. And people used to boil it um, in seawater, actually, for hours, and it ends up as a kind of puree. And it's really, really quite delicious. Um, we get salty, like, though, isn't it? It is salty, um, but there's a kind of sweetness to it as well. Yeah. You know, it's not salty. Like, Dillisk is very salty. It is. And it's a very savoury salty. It's almost smoky salty. Yeah. But Slaucon is a kind of a sweet saltiness. And, um, yeah, the, uh, like, and Peter Everett um, here in Waterford City, has, he's using it in his restaurant and the Pier Cafe in Tremor. And they, they're young chefs, like, that just never, ever heard of this before. Yeah. Um, so someone gave me a packet of crisps. There were the, a new a new brand. Uh, we got a sample of them, um, and they were made with Dillisk. No, it wasn't they? weren't actually pure Dillisk, but there was Dillisk. Geez, they're gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely, so, lovely, strong, salty flavour, but plenty more to it as well. Really nice. Yeah. So I did it with kale. It was tons of kale in our garden this year, and I made crisps um, with that and kelp earlier this week and yeah. pumpkin seeds, and it's just gorgeous. I think that. For some people, the taste is very strong, and it's not even just the saltiness; it's the it's that kind of sea y taste. Yes, you know what I mean. That you, kind you, of almost fishy. You have to you have to experience it to know what you mean. But yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. You know, you know, there's people who absolutely adore sort of shellfish. Yes, and there are other people then who can't stand. And I think seaweed is a bit like that. Yes, if you've already got that taste. Chance for for a shellfish, you'll probably love seaweed. Yeah, but like I love an old oyster now. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cook them. I'll eat them raw. Yeah, do but you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's murderous, really. I haven't. I, I'm not a meat eater at all, so I, <laughs> I, and I've never eaten an oyster. But um, yeah. The idea of swallowing it's the flavour would be well down my list of <laughs> things I'd like to do. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So you walk down to the beach yeah. at low tide. Yep. Right, and you stand there, and there's all sorts of different seaweeds and things growing on the rocks, and we can eat an awful lot there. So part of the fun, I think, you call foraging. I go foraging, uh, or foraging, as some people in the country say, and um, I show people um, which ones are edible, which ones are the tastiest to eat, and which ones to avoid, and um, tell people what they can do with them. And a key thing is just to show them how to forage sustainably so that people don't go down and clear out what's on the rocks, you know, because if you, if you do that, then that's the end of it. It would be like going out into your herb garden and pulling up a, a whole plant of parsley. Whereas if you go out with your scissors and you cut off a few little pieces of what you want, then what's left regrows. So that's part of it. Uh, talking then about the cooking and and. Like, you know, you you knew Dillisk. You knew exactly what Dillisk had been, probably because it had been in your family or you'd seen it as a... I learned about it in school. Did you? Yeah. Oh, Remember okay. my teacher telling us about edible seaweed in school. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Um, in most cases, people learn from, you know, you know just from somebody who, who, you know, their grannies or their aunts or uncles um, or their parents who eat it, and, and they're comfortable then with it, and they're probably going to be more comfortable trying another species that they haven't heard of. Yeah. But if, it's, if you're new to it, Dillisk is particularly strong, and it's absolutely delicious. Like, there is nothing like 
um, having a bag of dillis to snack on it. And I, like, I don't really like the crispy version of it. I like it when it's soft. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you, you can be chewing on dillis like for for five minutes you, you can, know. <laughs> you can and, and it, 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 there's a if you keep it there's a lovely kind of a salty constant it really is nice and carrageen would be the same but the other thing to watch I suppose when you're foraging is it's a bit like mushrooms or is it that if you go out into a field and there are a number of mushroomy things you need to be very very careful what you do eat like is there anything that would be on your typical county cork beach at low tide that you wouldn't put anywhere near your mouth in the seaweed line, no. Uh, we're lucky in Ireland uh, in that we don't have any poisonous species. So if you go on the rocks and you cut your seaweed from fresh, now I'm not, so I'm not talking about picking up bits and bobs that might be lying along the strand, right? right that are dead, basically, or decaying, and the, the sand hoppers on them and flies and all that. You don't eat that stuff. You, you might use that on your potato plot or, you know, keep snails off your hostas or something, but you wouldn't... Um, you wouldn't eat that because you don't know. But once the water is clean, and that's the key thing, and Cork County, all the councils in Ireland would be testing water quality during the bathing season from about May to September Yeah. every month. And in most beaches around me, they post up. I live near the Copper Coast in Waterford, and mostly the beaches, the results are posted up. But even if they're not posted up, they're still available from the county council. Now, Cork Harbour has a lot of heavy industry, and you'd kind of probably steer clear of that. Um, but you have some lovely beaches, more remote ones, you know, the little smaller, quieter ones, yeah. um, and not the sandy ones. It doesn't really grow on sand. It's, it's the little rocky coves. Yes. Uh, and once the water's clean, you're safe then eating anything. Now, you might, you know, you might try one that you don't like the taste of. I don't think they're all palatable. I think... I think about a dozen of them are palatable. Yeah, are palatable, yeah but there's none of them actually dangerous. But no. none of them, it's not like mushrooms, um, yeah. where, where you can, if you get it wrong with mushrooms, you can you, be in uh, serious trouble. You'll be in trouble. We've put up a picture of one of your recipes, and there's loads of recipes and details on your own website, which is called The Sea Gardener. That's right. Oh. Yeah, that name came about because I, I published a book called The Sea Garden a few years ago, and... Um, my daughter took the photographs for the book and we were down at the beach one day and uh, she was in her, she was, she was a young adult, but she was, she was not the, the world's biggest fan of seaweed. But one day she was looking in a rock pool and she said, it's like a little garden, isn't it? And you yeah. know yourself, if you look into, if you look into a rock pool What's and you lovely. see the mixture of reds and greens it's and fabulous. pinks and browns, it's actually gorgeous. And um, so that's where the name The Sea Garden came gotcha. from. And also, I suppose, the idea that it's a garden, it's not a farm, you know what I mean? You're, so you're foraging, you're picking a little bit of, of this, a little bit of that, you're moving around, you're not clearing out any single area. So it's more like gardening than farming, if you okay. know what I mean. We've got one of your recipes uh, put up on our social and people can look at your website, The Sea Gardener. Uh, thanks very much for that. I need to move to other things because it's busy. Marie Power, thank you very much. 1850-715-996. Try it. There's a, there's a thing up there uh, called Garden and Sea Risotto. Uses seaweed. Um, I might try that. Looks low. I love risotto. Uh, we have a constant argument in my house, whether it's risotto or risotto. I'll always go with risotto. Right. Listen to this. This is one of the bigger ads around at the moment. Hi, I'm Liam Leeson, UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador. If you have been vaccinated against COVID-19, you can now give a vaccine to someone in need by supporting UNICEF in the biggest vaccination campaign in history. UNICEF is currently delivering two billion vaccines to the poorest countries but we need your help 
So if you get a vaccine, please give a vaccine by going to unicef.ie today. Liam Neeson, voice of Liam Neeson. He is uh, international ambassador with UNICEF. Peter Parr, executive director of UNICEF Ireland. This campaign really going well, Peter. Good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ, to you and your listeners. Yes, it's it's going incredibly well. The response has been phenomenal. I would say overwhelming. It's gone from 2.5 million yesterday to 3.5 million today. And it shows that Irish people who have received the vaccine, uh, they're so grateful, they feel so protected, they're, they feel euphoric even, I would say, and they want to give something back. So how many doses have we donated? So it was one million yesterday. It is now, it's going up so fast it's hard to keep count, but uh, as of about an hour ago, it was 1.25 million. Wow. Uh, just people even, I think on Twitter this morning, saying, why don't we match what Ireland has given, the, the amount of vaccines that we have received ourselves, 6 million in Ireland, why don't we, as a people, match that and give it to people who otherwise just won't get vaccines because they don't have access to them? So for every vaccine dose given out in Ireland so far, we've given, for every four doses, we've given one away to UNICEF. That's That's, fantastic. That's an incredible way of putting it. Really well done, PJ. A great way of putting it. And it speaks volumes about the big heart of Irish people. We know that in our DNA, it's been there for years. We want to help uh, the poorest countries of the world, going way back to the missions when Ireland had more missionaries than anybody else. And the fact that you know we're in a privileged position now, Ireland is you know by and large protected thanks to an excellent vaccine campaign throughout the country. People say, well, "Listen, it is time now to give something back." And we're, we in UNICEF, I have to say, we're just privileged because. Each year, we deliver 2 billion vaccines anyway to children as part of our global vaccination campaign. And we're just doubling up on that. So UNICEF, Peter, has all of the logistics, all of the supply chains are in place. You do this all the time. You just need the vaccines. Correct. Yes, it has taken 70 years, seven decades for us to build up this global infrastructure. And and just for, for your listeners, PJ, what that involves is each year, as I said, we, we deliver 2 billion vaccines for children. These are uh, measles, polio, uh, pentavalent uh, vaccines, the sort of vaccines that save millions of lives. Uh, we, we transport them from factories around the world at cold temperatures, through planes and cold temperatures into national warehouses, regional warehouses, local warehouses and, and refrigerators, and sometimes we, we call this the cold chain because there are many links in the yeah. chain and it's cold, so we call it the cold chain. And sometimes the last links on those cold chains can be on donkeys or bicycles with little boxes of vaccines. So the, the infrastructure really is in place now, but we just need the vaccines itself. And today I, I've been calling on the Irish government to share some of our vaccines, uh, just 20%, a fifth of what we have would be fantastic. But yeah. the, the people have already spoken. Right. Now, we've got 1.25 million doses uh, donated so far. Internationally, I mean, you're an operational in how many? 90 countries. How many would you hope to, to gather together? Yes, well, we have very firm targets. It's a good question, Pete, uh, Peter, JP. The, the reason, the, 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 the amount we have donated, we have, we have delivered so far, excuse me, the amount we've delivered so far since we started this in March is 195 million and we're aiming 
to deliver 2 billion additional uh, COVID-19 vaccines this year over the next 12 months. So, um, you know, it's, it's in train. Uh, we have very ambitious targets, uh, but we're well on our way and it's accelerating all the time. In terms of the cost of, of donating, so I go onto your website. Yes. What do I get from my money? In other words, or sorry, what do you get from my money? How much does it cost me to donate? It is for, as I said, UNICEF, we, we do this right throughout the world. So we, we know exactly what the unit cost is to yeah. deliver a vaccine in any given country. And that is precisely 4.48 euro, 4 euro, 48 cents. So we're, we're rounding that up to 5 euro. So if, if you go onto our website and give 5 euro, you'll give a dose. If you donate 10 euro, you give two doses and fully protect a person. Obviously, a lot of people are doing more than that. But at the very least, and uh, th- that's what people can do. And you can also go onto the website, there's a, what's called a UNICEF COVID-19 dashboard, and you can see exactly in a very transparent way where those vaccines are going, how many were delivered last week, and exactly what countries we hope to deliver over the next seven days. It's very open and transparent, and people are, you know, derive a lot of confidence from that, obviously. Okay. All right, listen, Peter, continue the excellent work at UNICEF. And for every, thank you, Peter Power, Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland, man, his his path and mine crossed in UCC uh, years back. Um, so for every, we've given out six million doses. We've had six million doses injected in Ireland and we've given 1.25 for every that's that's four. So for every four doses of vaccine that we've gotten we've given one, which is brilliant. UNICEF.ie I have to laugh. I was messing around this morning, digging out that ad audio just to illustrate and I had to. I just had to. Forgive me, I'm not taking the piss out of UNICEF. I'm not, right? The work is brilliant, but I, I just had to. I could not resist. I couldn't, like, and I could not resist. If you get a vaccine, please give a vaccine by going to unicef.ie today. If you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. I will kill you. Couldn't resist. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. The highfalutin flute quartet will play the final concert in Triscoll's summertime concert series taking place on Saturday, August 28th. Further information available and tickets at triscolartscentre.ie Access all areas Irish purveyors of hook-heavy indie rock scorchers, The Academic return to Cork with a brand new EP Community Spirit set to play Cypress Avenue on Sunday October 24th Access all areas Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas Your guide to nightlife on the side On Cork's 96 FM. Nobody has managed to guess yet the most expensive place in Cork and indeed in Munster to buy a house. Not Kinsale. A few other guesses. People are saying Rochestown. No, not Rochestown. It might come to mind. 
Glasheen, no, Pat, not Glasheen. Skull, not Skull, Trina, no. Not Bantry, no. I'll tell you before the news at 11. It, it took me, but I said, what? You're joking. No, it's there. Black and white, the examiner today on the list. The price, the average price there is 392,500. Tell you where in the world. 1850-715-996. Take you back to June of last year and a conversation we had on the opinion line with Effie Murphy. The doctor told me that I was borderline diabetic. My cholesterol was through the roof. My blood pressure was very high and I was hitting 22 stone. And um, I think it was the moment when he said I was morbidly obese. It hit me then that I needed to do something. And also the fact that New Zealand wouldn't give me a visa to get into the country because I was a health hazard to their system. Get away. Yeah. So I think that was the moment I realised, you know, you need to do something now. You wouldn't get a visa for New Zealand because of your weight. That's right, yeah. Crikey. And they gave me a limit of three months to lose weight. So um, within the three months, I was after losing three stone. And I was able to get my visa and we flew over then in March. So that was that journey. That was the start of it. After losing the weight, I started piling it back on again. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a matter of time. I knew I needed to do something. So I opted for gastric sleeve surgery. What is gastric sleeve? So it's a surgery where they take away 90% of your stomach. Um, so when they're cutting your stomach away, they're actually stapling it at the same time. And then um, and during the same surgery, they take away the hunger gland. So you don't feel hungry either anymore. Yeah. That's very radical surgery. It's major surgery. It's done through keyhole, though. So you're not really like you're not majorly scared or anything from it. But it is a huge surgery. Yeah. Effie, how are you now? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. It's weird listening back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you now? I'm not too bad. I'm very well. The, the weight loss has continued? It has, yeah. I'm currently maintaining at 11.3. Thank God. Yeah, very well. You're, you're down 50%. I am. I'm down 11 stone. And when we spoke after the surgery, it was very difficult to get used to it again, wasn't it? It was. It was the, the mental change more than anything. You know, you're still looking at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I'm still fat. <laughs> but um, it's all changed now. I can see myself and it, it's great, you know. And eating now, was, eating was very difficult because you had to be so careful. Can you eat normally now? Yeah, I'm eating everything and anything around me now. Um, but the only thing is I'm still having smaller portions because I'm still restricted, which is great. Two years right. out, you know. So you physically can't eat as much as you used to? No. No, no. And it's been, you look fabulous, by the way. I saw you, you saw much. your photograph in, in, in the Echo. You, Thank you. And you're going back to, you were passionately involved in pageanting when you lived in Australia yes. for a while, yourself and your daughter. You're That's going right. back to it now. Yeah, um, I've actually still been involved for the last few years, but um, over the COVID, it was all cancelled and we couldn't go anywhere. Um, but I'm flying to the UK next week um, representing Cork. So hopefully now I'll come back with the crown and then if I do, I go to Las Vegas next year representing Ireland. And what's so. the competition? It's Miss Diamond Ireland. But it's being held in the UK? It's been held in the UK, yeah. Um, because it was originally Miss Diamond UK and they opened a division for Ireland two years ago. So um, 
yeah. So hopefully now I'll be the first to bring it home. <laughs> well, you know what? You, you have the experience from down under. So so what what's the the procedure? Is, is it a bit like any other contest? Do you just, does it inter- interview on stage and all that, is it? Uh, so yeah, there's a lot behind the scenes. So I have to do a lot of community work and charity work before I even get to the competition. Um, I've raised over 1,600 euro for various charities over the past two years. Um, so that was the start of it. And then... Uh, there's interview round when I get over there and then there's three on-stage rounds where you model on stage. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work but hopefully it'll be worth it. Great, great. Now, you went to Turkey for the surgery and then did you go back there again for, for other surgery afterwards? I did. I've been there three times now. So um, the first one was for the weight loss surgery in June 2019. Um, then a year later I flew back to have the skin removed um, and I had a full set of dental done as well when I was there. Mm-hmm. And then I went back a third time. Um, I had muscle repair and my thighs done. Because of course, going back a fourth time, PJ. <laughs> tell you, you can tell me that in a sec. So, in, like, obviously, when you lose that much weight, the mm-hmm. skin doesn't shrink. So that's you had to get that tucked in, didn't you? But what, what's the muscle repair about then? So the muscle repair, basically most women, um, their muscles will stretch out after having kids and, you know, when, when you're obese as well, it would stretch, but more so when you have the kids. So um, mine was after opening fierce, so we had to, when he was doing the tummy tuck, he pulled all the muscles back into place again and sewed me back up. So, yeah. Has all that been fierce painful? Honestly, I I sailed through a PJ. Now, I've obviously, you know, I work for the, for the hospital now. And yeah, I was about to get to that. There. Like, trust you, you get in anywhere. As long as I know you, uh, you get in anywhere. <laughs> but <laughs> tell me about the Ford surgery before we do the, the gig at the hospital. What, what, what's the, what are you going back for now? Um, so I'm going back over for a 360 liposuction um, and possibly something done to my bum because it's saggy after the, the weight loss as well. Um, obviously, I have to speak with the surgeon and see what he says, right. but um, see which one is better for yeah. me. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's the backside of me and getting all done this time. <laughs> now, you ended up getting a job. Now, as long as I know you, Effie Murphy, yep. <laughs> you're getting anywhere, right? Anywhere. How did you manage this? So the, um, I suppose like with my social media, I, I've, I have a good following and stuff like that. And the hospital would have been seeing my posts and um, people asking me about it. And so they offered me a position. So I work part time for the hospital now, which is great. Um, I'm the Irish coordinator. So anybody that books with them, I send them over. Very handy. Yeah, I absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to laugh because, as I said, you've always been resourceful as long as I know you. You're yeah. as happy as you've been in a long time. In a long, long time, PJ. I've, do you know what? I, I'm finally content, I'll be honest with you. Mm. You know, happy out here in y'all. And going back to where all the, the weight problems came from, mm-hmm. you now believe that you had a food addiction of some kind. I, I actually still do, PJ. Um, so my food addiction would have started when I was a child. Um, like, I used to sit down at the dinner table and I always judged if I had more food on my plate than my brother. Um, so that's that was like age 10. And it just kept getting worse and worse throughout the years. And I just thought it was a normal thing. Um, so, yeah, like, now I see that I still have a food addiction and I still order my takeaways there every week, but I can't eat them, which is great because yeah. if I could, I'd be piling the weight back on, you know. Yeah, yeah, because um, you also got something done. You, you, you no longer feel hunger like you used to. So the hunger gland grows back. 
So I can feel hunger now. Right. Um, but for the first 12 months, you can't really feel the hunger, but it's the head hunger that you have to battle with because yeah. you're so used to saying and, you're hungry. And, you, and know? you know, you say the gland grows back, but mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the mind and the brain are, are incredible things. Oh, it's crazy. Do you, have a, do you have an appetite now proportional to what you're able to eat? Or do you, st- do you, do you still get, do you, do you still want more, shall we say? Oh, I still want more. Like even from day one, I still dish up my older size portions, even though I know I can't finish them. I still have to have those big plates of food. That's a strange um, one. So there's a lot of weight, a, a lot of weight there, yeah. But um, so you'd still you put know. the you'd still put the same amount up that you used to eat before, which you know you, you know you can't finish it. Yeah. And is that what yeah. is that just what gets you through? It is, Fair yeah, because I still have that addiction, you know. So and and I can't. Um, Anywhere I go, like, the food is there, you know. I go to a garage to fill up the car with diesel and the food in the deli, I go to the deli. Like, there's no stopping me. I still go there. Um, So it's tough, but, like, mentally, I'm doing so much better now than what I was two years ago, you know. Because you know that you've you've done what's necessary to to deal with it. You're dealing with it and you've taken your life back. Yeah, exactly. How are the kids? They're wonderful. They're great. Ollie's in star camp today now for his, uh, his last day of summer camp. He loves it. Frighten me. How old is he now? He's seven. Oh, get off Imagine. the stage. Good seven, I know. Yeah. Effie, great talking to you, girl. All Thanks right. So much and good luck with everything else. Keep, keep us in the loop as to how you do. I will. Fingers crossed now I do good. <laughs> take care. Take care. That's Effie Murphy heading off to Miss Darwin, Ireland uh, in the UK. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. There is some news breaking there in the last while. Cork, we all have a story to do with Mahan Point and Debenhams, the old Debenhams shop in Mahan Point. The Fraser Group, who I presume are House of Fraser and those people, Frasers have announced they're taking over that old Debenham spot in Mahan Point's Man point rather sports lifestyle beauty products luxury brands etc etc uh, early 2022 early to mid 2022 is when the opening is up the first stage of it will open that's House of Fraser coming the missus will be delighted that's House of Fraser coming to uh, coming to the old Debenhams in 2022 yeah it's sports direct own House of Fraser, of course. Now, yep, everybody's owned by somebody else now. You know, um, you kind of don't know what you're dealing with, but it's good news anyway that uh, that old building won't be, or that old outlet won't be lying idle. Um, 1850-715-996. One person, they either know, or they guessed, or they read the paper. One person got the most expensive place buy a property uh, in Munster and they're all all top 10 are in County Cork and I'll give them to you alright at ok 
Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. Okay, so Middleton and Watergrass Hill jointly in 10th place on 280,000 for a property. Clonakilty, 295,000. Cork City, Southside, 305,000. Glenmire, 310,000. Carrigaline, 314. And the top five, Rylan, 315. Carrignavar, 321. Ballincollig, 335,000 euro. Kinsale, 345. Some of the guesses, Blarney, no. Blackrock, no. Fermoy, no. Castletown Roach, no. Noreen, no. Bantry, no. Skull, no. Grenada, no. No. The answer is, at an average price of 392,500 for a house. Crookstown. Crookstown, of all places. And that's not a slight against Crookstown. I know it and like it. Know it well. Uh, there's a little pub there on the corner, and I've played a few gigs there over the years. Crookstown, presently the most expensive place in Cork and in Munster to buy a house at 392,500 yo yo's. 1850-715-996. Heritage. Our Cork Heritage is celebrated every August during Heritage Week. And it runs from tomorrow the 14th until Sunday the 22nd, marked with a number of different projects and a number of different initiatives over the weekend. I've no doubt that we will be marking them. I'm joined, though, by a historian supreme, Liam O'Higgin, to talk a bit about our heritage. And he's done another one of these quizzes for me. You embarrassed me last year, Liam. Don't do it again. Good morning. <laughs> morning, Peter. You're too good. You're too good. Well, tell me about the importance of... Heritage Week. Well, Heritage Week is very important, actually, to, especially to um, to all people, really, but mostly to our local historians. In Cork City alone, we have plenty of local historians. We don't have to go outside of the city. And uh, all you have to do is pick up the paper there every week, and you know, the likes of Chair McCarthy and Lord Michael Linehan, oh, you know, Jimmy Bahi and all them, they're all brilliant, and they, any information you need, and of those people, there's lots more of as well, just historical societies, you know, the, um, there's one place, historical society, they're now in the China Street area, and they've got all the great book, um, Extraordinary Women in Extraordinary Times, and there's an awful lot of information in that about people that we never knew, well, I'm speaking for myself, that I never knew anything about, because we weren't taught about it in school. Yeah. And that, that's what annoys me, even... All the talk all along, you know, this particular time of the year, well, this particular time of the century, really, all about Thomas Max Sweeney and his family and all that kind of stuff. I was born in the middle parish, a hundred years from where Thomas Max Sweeney was born. And no one ever told me that while I was going to school. Yeah. So to me, that was a disaster. Like. And yeah. there's lots of that going on even today. They just want to talk about it. Yeah. And it's important then... Cork Heritage Open Day in particular is so important to use one day, one week, but one day in particular, to celebrate our local history. Like you said, Liam, the history we don't necessarily get to learn. Exactly, exactly. And it's there for everyone, like. It's there for everyone. If you want any 
information. All you have to do is go into the library, get a book, whatever, whatever subject you want, and they're all there for you. Like. But I, think, I still think they should be taught in the schools. Okay. That's the time to get the, the, you know, the children, when I say children, I'm talking about 14 or 15 even. Yeah. Tell me so about Heritage pro- Day. It's a big event. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, all the, the, um, the important buildings are all open t- today, tomorrow, actually. And, um, you know, you can walk in and own their free, there's no problem. Um, there's about 40, 45 buildings. Now, if you can't find something to interest you in that, there's something wrong with you. But, um, like, for in, in other instance, now, you've got St. Peter's Church in the North Main Street. Again, where I was born in Henry Street. We played inside there. We chased pigeons there. We've done damage in there. But no one ever taught us the historical story of that church. Yes. It's a very historical church. Yes. But no one taught us. No, I look, when I look back on it now and say, what kind of ages were we at? But what kind of ages were the people that were teaching us? Even up, I say our parents didn't even know. Yeah. You know, that, that's just one, oh, like. There's an awful lot of that history, isn't there, Liam? Gone. Pilot, because it pilot. hasn't been passed down. And you're right. Tell the children in the places they're running to play and kick a ball. Tell them what happened before. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's very important, I think, that, that they'll, they'll appreciate it and they won't, do, they won't do the amount of damage we used to. No, we wasn't doing that. A lot of damage, as I said, chasing pigeons and things like that. But um, still, we didn't realise the importance of that building. That's only just one building now I'm talking about. It was the same when I was going to my grandmother's up in Pickle Street. We'd be inside in St. Finbell's Cemetery, running wild around the place. Yes, yeah, St. Finbell's Cathedral, sorry. And, um, no, as you know, at that time, if you went into St. Finbell's, you were done forevermore. Like, you were going down to hell, and that was it. So everything had to be done, and the quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the celebration of our... You mentioned, actually, we were talking about Frederick Douglass uh, last week and, and how we're really exploring his Cork history. You, you messaged me, and I forgot to read it out. You, you know more about Frederick Douglass than places that he stayed and places that he visited? When he was here. Well, you see, I got this note from a great friend of mine, the last of Ronnie Hurley. I know Ronnie. Ronnie. I knew Ronnie. Ronnie. Yeah. Ronnie passed away there no last month. Ronnie was a great historian. And, if, you know, I'm getting a pile of information from Ronnie's book. Ronnie wrote a book at the, amongst, among the stones. And he mentions in the book where Frederick uh, Douglas, and it's spelled D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S. That's Everybody's right. No two S's at the end. But he was great friends with him. Uh, Macho. And he actually met him at his home in Cross Street a, a couple of times, really. Right. But when, when Father Macho went to um, America, no, this is more of it about Father Macho. I always thought the Templars movement was only in Ireland. It was only in the last couple of years. I mean, after the Scotland show, he went to America and he went to England and everywhere. Yeah. But when he went to America, Frederick Douglass thought that Father Macho had nothing to do when he got involved in the you know, Black Lives Matter, as we call it, no? <laughs> the abolitionist movement, yeah? Exactly, exactly. But Father Matthew refused because he didn't want to be taken from the Templars movement. And then your man, um, Frederick Douglass, died with him, and they never spoke to one another after. Crikey, yeah. You know, they fell out, they fell out, really. Yeah. He, he, he couldn't understand why Father Matthew didn't get involved in his movement. Yeah. Every square inch of this city we love, Liam, has a story attached to it, hasn't it? Steeped in history, PJ. Steeped in history. Every, every street you walk down. And there's, a, you know, all you have to do is look up or look down or ask someone a question and you'll get the history of the place. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Even Patrick Street. 
the court here. Henry Street, not Main Street. Give me Don't something about Street. Patrick Street that people mightn't know. Ah, well, you know, we all know it's Castle Street was the river, and the river is still running underneath it. That's right. And if you go over onto Patrick's Quay and look across towards Patrick's Bridge, you can see where the water is still coming out there, the culvert coming out and into the into the river. That's the North Channel, as we call it. Yeah. yeah. But that river in Patrick Street went right up through them. The gates there, that was there by... Um, Queen's Old Castle. Yes. Queen's Old Castle was the King's Castle, and the Queen's Castle was over by Castle Street. And there was a channel one in there, into in Castle Street, we'll say. And Castle Street was actually the docks. Great. Believe it or not. That was, the, that was the docks back in the day. And, um, you know, so every time you're walking in Castle Street when you're crossing the road, you're, you're walking in water. The Grand Parade is the same. Oh, well, the, <laughs> I've often been accused, Liam, of thinking I can walk in water, you know. <laughs> Come here, you've done this you've done this again to me. You've compiled a few questions. Yeah, well, one thing I want to question, one thing I want to rectify and correct is the first question is wrong, actually. No, I, I'm taking the blame for it, but I don't want to me. <laughs> It says, where in Cork was James Joyce born? That should be, where in Cork was James Joyce's father born? Right. Right. Because I knew James Joyce had a Cork connection to Angles history, so it was his father was born there. There's actually a plaque on the footpath there. Outside, um, I think it was Lennox's ship, but I don't know know what's there now, in in Angles history. Right. Okay. And uh, if you walk down there and look from outside that um, shop now I'm speaking about at the corner, you'll see the plaque on the road. Right. I knew yeah. he had a connection to the place, but uh, yeah, it was his father actually was born there. Right. Correct, correct. Okay. okay. The, the first question actually is we only talked was Jim Chai's born. No, he was obviously born in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> drive, drive, drive on and give me more. Uh, I put on a few. Um, what was the old name? Was it for Pernell Place? Wasn't that. Um, or oh, was it. Warren Street. One's place. One's place. What? My father never called it anything, only one's place. Right. And what was the old name for Thomas Davis Bridge? Oh, that's easy. That was Wellington Bridge. No, lots of people still call it Wellington Bridge. Yeah. Believe it or not. If you get this one, I'll just, I'll just hang up on you. Hmm. What was the old name for Conley Road in Ballyfeyhead? I have not a clue. I'm way too young for that. The Muddy Lane. The Muddy Lane? The muddy lane. How and on I, earth? I, well, obviously, I, it was out in the country one time. Yeah, it was to, actually, it was coming all around to where uh, Paul off road, and there's always Richard Hinchin's book. I got that. There's a map on it, and it shows Connolly Road as Muddy Lane. I would not have had a clue. And I'll bet you half the residents of Connolly Road probably wouldn't know it either. They think you'll be having to go off. <laughs> 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 I, live, I live in Connolly Road myself, so I can have a go off. Like, um, <laughs> um, Name four streets that were demolished with the building of Merchant's Key Shopping Centre. Crikey. Now, I remember the old key there because as a very young DJ, I used to play a couple of those pubs. So I'll try this one. There was definitely Merchant Street went anyway. That's correct. And, and, and there was a Thomas Street. Correct. But past that, I'm lost. North Street. North Street. Where was that? That, that was running from um, Merchant's Key over onto Merchant Street. Right. Just down at the end of, just down at the end of uh, Fisher Street. Fisher Street. Okay. And that's gone too, obviously. No, that's gone out too, yeah. 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 
Um, let me put another one. You probably know this one. Who in Cork was known as the singing fireman? Oh, was it Jim or John O'Shea? John O'Shea. Yeah, he John. released a, a record, I remember. Actually, he was a band or chanter. He was involved among the, the Shannon uh, historical group. And uh, any time you copied, I was playing a few tunes yeah. and singing. I think we had a copy. We had a copy of his. It was a tape back then. We had a copy of his tape uh, years ago. You used to get played. Yeah, and he also wrote a book about sissy. That it's I didn't know. Get your hands on it. All about growing up in in Granabrah. Right. Uh, where is the oldest house in Cork? You probably know these. I think you would. Yeah. The oldest yeah. house. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't be sure there now at all. Twenty-four Vicar Street. You know where Vicar Street I is. I do, yeah, I do. Yeah, twenty-four Vicar Street. There's a big um, stone house there. Going down, if you're going down from Paddock Street on the left-hand side, that is reputed to be the oldest house in Cork. Does anybody live there these days? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see, Vicar Street was known as Tom Murphy's Lane. Right. And when I inquired about that house, I was told, going back in the days. All that area would have been farmland. Right. And the man that probably owned the ground there was Tom Murphy. And that's what it was called, Tom, Tom Murphy's Lane. And that house would have been there then. Right. You right. see, they built them, they built cottages, if you like, on either side of them. That house, no, that I'm speaking about. Okay. All right? All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what is the, name, the oldest pub in Cork? Ah, well, no, the gateway. Yeah, that's an easy one. Perfect. Where in Cork is Tyrone Place? <sighs> Haven't a notion. Off of Tower Street. Right. I know Tower Street. Yeah, well, if you go down Tower Street, from Briar's Walk, take the first left and Tyrone Place is in there. Right. What was the old name for the Mercy Hospital? Oh, that was easy, because the Lord Mayor used to live there one time, and it was yeah. known as the Mansion House. That is correct. And I, that's the street I was born in. I tell everyone that I was born next door to the mansion house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are in Cork. Is the Shrubbery House? Shrubbery House. Shrubbery. S-H-R-U-B-B-E-R-Y. Shrubbery. I'd, I'd have to guess it's got something to do with Fitzgerald's Park. You're on the ball to the old, to the old museum. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, here's one that I'd be amazed. Again, I would be amazed if you get this because anyone I ever asked, no one knew. Right. In which church court, in, in, what, in which court church is there a stained glass window of, to St. Ita dedicated to Terence McSweeney's sisters? St. Ita or St. Ita. Oh, I God. I, all I know is, I know for sure it's on the north side, but besides that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess. No, I only found out myself about two months ago, actually. And I was, I was shocked that I never heard of it. It was up in Old Lady Crown in Mayfield. Really? Yeah. Really? No, I knew, I knew, I knew there was one. I knew there was one, but I, I, I didn't know what church it was in. Right. And it was, it was the, the girls in the school in St. Um, East School, which was the, run by the Maxwini sisters. Yes. It was the, the, the got it put up there. It was the base for it. Like. I have you. I have you. All right. So, no, you, could, you could keep me going all day. Give me one more. I could, I could, and I love it. <laughs> but I want to get back to Ronnie again. Because yeah. Ronnie, I, you know, I was going to the... Ronnie wrote this book now once, and that's it. This is another thing I want to make plain to you. 
if you're looking for information, if you're interested, cemeteries are the place to go. Because yeah. you're headstones, you come home, you Google them, and you get onto someone, you'll find a book. And that's where you will learn a pile of history about Cork. Yeah. It's amazing, mate. It's amazing what you can discover. For instance, <laughs> yeah, uh, when was the polio? Sorry, I'll I just diversitate no there for a while. What year was the polio? What year was the polio epidemic in Cork? Yeah, but uh, oh, the polio. I, I, uh, it, it was after TB, so it was the would it be the middle to late fifties. Be correct, you're on the ball. 54 to fifty six, fifty four to fifty six, and Cork lost four islands that year. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just as a matter of interest. Um, no, here's a very tricky one for you. Name the two popes who are buried in St. Joseph's Cemetery. Ah, uh, come here now. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd want, I'd want pints in me to think about that one. I know two that, popes? Two popes. I, They're I'm all buried in Rome. Well, that's what I thought to, actually. <laughs> Go on, tell me. <laughs> Did you ever hear of Pope Owen O'Mahony? No. I you remember his the television there with the, the old man, he can just go down around and man, we all the, the, are for, maybe it's for, don't West talk anyway. All the, the old man, he can and they'd have a big weekend down there. Right. And one of man, he, he was known as the Pope because he's the man that has um, Alan Maxim in the college right. changed. I mean, that place changed because that was known as the, the, the examination room. Right. And right. The Pope and he I was trying to make a connection with Pope's Key and I couldn't. Yeah, well, Pope, yeah, yeah. The Pope, Pope's Key had nothing to do with them. I, thought, I always thought no, I had Roman connections as well, but no, that, that, that's called after the Pope family. Do you I remember see. Pope's, they used to sell um, Porf and all that kind of stuff, Lango. Right, Pope's, right. They had a place up in um, the OK Garage there in Victoria Cross. <laughs> and they, you know, they had a couple of uh, turf stores around the city as well. Yeah. But that, this is um, Pope Sir John, Sir John Pope Hennessy. He must be one of the most important men that I ever came across. And not once did I ever hear him mentioned until I went down to the cemetery and found his grave. And who was he? He was uh, Sir John Pope Hennessy. He was John Hennessy. Nice. Right, but his his mother had been born to one of the popes. There were two managers there. So he had a double-barreled name? Correct. Back in the time when no one had a double-barreled name? Well, yes. (laughs) I remember now, we were under British rule at the time. This is going back to the 1800s. Yeah. But he became Sir John Pope Hennessy. And he was was very well up in the, the English Parliament. He was governor of Hong Kong. He was governor of Mauritius. He was governor of um, Barbados, all these kind of things. And in actual fact, they have statues, monuments, and roadways called after him in Hong Kong. Crikey. And he buried, and he buried out in St. Vinnemar Cemetery. Liam, Liam, I leave it there with you, Bob, because we could, we, could, we, could, we could spend the day at this, and it's great crack. Thanks very much. That's historian Liam O'Higgin. And trust me, he has story after story after story after story. And you name a corner of Cork, and the man's got a story about it. All to mark Heritage Week, which starts tomorrow, and Cork Heritage Day, with all those buildings open for you to go and visit. A bit of fun. And he's right, you know. He's completely right. There's so much history in our city that we know nothing about because why because nobody told us ever when we were kids can we just talk
the opinion line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM's Be Kind to Your Mind with GP, author and wellness expert, Dr. Mark Rowe. The pandemic has really had an impact on people's mental health and emotional well-being. You don't have to make radical changes to really enhance your well-being. I talk about the power of small, the the small positive changes that will add up to make a big difference. So I think self-care is really, really important. It's an absolute foundational choice by looking after yourself, whether it's your physical health, your mental health or your emotional well-being, that you doing that not just enables you to be the best version of you in the world, It supports everybody around you, whether it's your family, your work colleagues, your friends, neighbours, your community. Helping you through COVID. Helping you through COVID. Cork's 96 FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96 FM. A couple of callers asking, did Liam uh, write any books? He wrote a couple of them. Uh, we'll we'll find out more. We'll find out which ones are still in print. Uh, on Effie Murphy, who we were talking to earlier on, Colin wants to try to find her on Instagram. It's Effie spelled E F F I E. Uh, she's spelling it Effie. It's actually E F F Y. Uh, that's the mistake you were making, caller. You were putting in E F F I E. It's actually E F F Y. So Effie's journey. EFFY's journey on Instagram and she'll pop up there. We were talking earlier in the week to Father John Collins about Wally the Walrus but he was complaining bitterly about the lack of uh, mackerel in the harbours in Cork, in West Cork for example. Jimmy was on to say the same. PJ, why are there no mackerel these days? Get a fisherman on to explain that. They, They should be hopping on the rocks at this stage. Happy days, says Jimmy. And I mentioned my morbid fear of Friday the 13th, uh, or generally the number 13, but Friday in particular. I'm, if 28 minutes to go, and with a bit of luck and some fervent prayer, I'll get to 12 o'clock without making a mess of anything. But D says, PJ, you shouldn't fear the number 13. You were born on the 12th, a strong number, and spent the first day of your life being introduced to the world by your proud parents. Have fun at the weekend. Thank you, Dee. You know me too well, born on the 12th. Oh, that's weird. Oh. <laughs> 1850-715-99. Yeah, in case you missed it, the most expensive place in Cork, in Munster, to buy a new property is Crookstown, of all places. 392500 the average price. 1850-715-996. Well, it's been a turbulent number of months now for many, many businesses since the first lockdown last March. And you have to feel so sorry for them. And with the rollout of the vaccination programme, it's made things a bit easier. It's made it easier to get back to business and get back to work. And it's instilled new confidence in many. And there's a group of businesses have gotten together on French Church Street here in the city under the umbrella title, if you like, of Blue Nile Lifestyle, which is a most unusual title. And for this week's Cork versus COVID, Moirad has been finding out more. Blue Nile Lifestyle opened its doors in recent weeks and Director Khalid says they offer something for everyone. And I know since the day I 
came to the place I know what I want in this building exactly. I want the beauty salon, I want the hair salon, I want all this together in one place. And those build community, 100%. I believe those people that are all connected, you know, like fitness and beauty and modeling and photography and music. The building on French Church Street in the city houses a beauty salon, barbers, a music studio, gym and photography studio with more set to be added, including shared workspaces. Khalid says it's important to believe in yourself. I want to have something just new, 100% new. I've been thinking, I've been thinking, I've been working hard also at the same time. I want to have a different type of things. I want to build a community at the same time. It's work. It's 100% is work for me, but it's hard. Like, you know, if you believe in yourself, you always go for what you believe. David of David AK Photo X Photography Studio says the new location is great. Business has moved forward in terms of the restrictions of ease now, which is great. Uh, we obviously do have the likes of um, mask wearing and maintaining social distancing and stuff like that. But it's great that the space is there. It's quite big, spacious. So it does enable us to do more business than we probably wouldn't have been able to do uh, if we didn't have this facility. David says it's exciting to all work together. It's great. I mean, we bounce ideas off of each other. We support each other. Um, If I get an inquiry about, uh, say, headshots, for instance, I would offer makeup services and barbering services to my clients as well, which generates business for them as well. It's fantastic. Connor is a personal trainer in Blue Life Fitness. He says they wanted to do something different. Khaled and myself have ran other gyms in the past. It had to be something different, a different project. So we decided to get um, people from different cultures, uh, different backgrounds and uh, get a couple of unique businesses uh, all under the one roof that complement each other. And that's basically what we we decided to do, to stand out from the rest. That was the, the, the main uh, objective. Connor says everyone is welcome at Blue Nile Lifestyle. From all the businesses going from different countries, different cultures, different outlooks, and we're all together working together as one, as a, as a family almost. And we want people to see that. So no matter you know who you are, um, you come in, you're going to feel very welcomed here. You're going to get the smile faces. Uh, everyone is positive here. It's a nice vibe in the building. And uh, I'd say to anyone, come in, have a look for yourself, uh, and you'll get that vibe. And there'll be something here for you. Yoga teacher Sinead says there's a really nice atmosphere. It is, yes, a good energy and a good vibration between people and we're all connecting and helping each other, which is really nice. Sinead says the location is ideal. Oh, it's perfect because people from their lunch breaks and there's a lot of students in the cities and so in the city, so it's great, yeah. You can find Blue Nile Lifestyle on French Church Street in Cork City Centre. So going back to books and Liam O'Higgin, he, he didn't write these ones but he was involved in them and he helped out and he, he's, he promotes them and they're in print as well, which is important. Ronnie Herlihy, a great historian. Ronnie was a guest on the programme more than once. Among the Stones, Ronnie passed away uh, last year. Great, great historian. The Shannon Heritage Historical Group have a book called Extraordinary Women in Extraordinary Times. And John O'Shea, who was the singing fireman, he has a book about Grana Broher, which is called The Red City. And Liam himself has a book coming out sometime in 2022 about the marsh. So that's that one covered. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee. Backed by Board Energy. 
Yeah, voting continues right across the weekend. We want you to vote, vote, vote for your favourites. And uh, voting will close on Monday, 16th August. All the categories are on the website. Just go into the website, look for the awards section, and then go into the individual categories, and you can vote for your choice. Like, let's look at best barber and best hairdresser. If you're going for best barber, you could be looking at the Baldy Barber, at Mikey's Barbershop, at Blades, with a Z, Barber Lane, or Peaky Barbers. They're the nominees for best barber. Or for best hairdresser, Amy Michelle. Hairdressing might take your fancy. Fusion, Bounce, Guilty Hair and Beauty, or Jesse Bush. Just two of the many categories where you can currently vote you can find the shortlist. Just go to www.96fm.ie. You'll find the awards section. You'll find the shortlists. And you'll get in there and vote for the best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Bordgash Energy. And, of course, the awards presented by Cork's 96FM. Let us see where we are with regards to travel. Since the 19th of July, it's a month Monday, since the 19th of July you've been able to travel internationally. We had the kerfuffle about vaccine passports and vaccine cards and all this and all that, but you can now. And it would appear that some people are. I'm not too sure how many are. I've seen some friends of my own, say on Facebook and Twitter, have put up pictures of being overseas. I wonder how much of an uptake there's been in the past month since we actually could travel overseas again. Pat Dawson, Chief Exec of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Pat, good morning again. Good morning, PJ. Has there been an uptake in the month? Uh, there has been. I did a bit of it myself as well uh, for a few days down and uh, some walk down in Spain, south of Spain and that, and it was all smooth. And certainly it's it's uh, after changing since the 19th of July, as you said. And, uh, you know, flights are about 70, 80% full on many of the routes and... Uh, there are a limited number of flights at the moment. They're still loading up. And I was speaking to a meeting with Arlingus um, yesterday. And I think uh, the uh, States will probably start opening uh, when we're allowed in. I think they're looking at October now. So it's gradual uh, getting back to normal. But we have a ways to go. Are the airlines happy with the initial uptake? I would think so, yeah. I would think so. Again, it's very restricted. Uh, Ryanair have a lot of aircraft in, in the sky. Arlingus a lesser amount, and they're, they're slowly putting things together as such. But I'd say generally, uh, generally okay, generally okay. But it's way back. I mean, it's probably about 20, 25% on, on what was flying in 2019. I mean, we're, we're at the peak, but now we're nearly at the end of, 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 of our summer holidays, yes. so to speak, with kids going back to school and everything else. But, uh, you know, it's normal. Cork Airport is normal. Handles it very well. There's no big deal about it once you have your, once you have your documentations, be it, uh, you know, in your hand or on a phone. And I mean, I, I had a case coming back where, would you believe, four or five guys around 20 years of age and uh, one guy had all the, the DCCs or whatever in his phone and his friend was, uh, was out uh, tr- coming through and his DCC was with the guy on the plane and they couldn't take him on board and he had to he had to stay back and get home the next day. You know, things like that. So you really have to be, you have to be careful and do a check. Digi- uh, DCC is digital COVID cert, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, everything else. And there's a, a locator form that you fill up as well. So you've got to go through it and, and, and make sure you have 
things in order. But does it uh, put so time on the on the journey at at each end, Pat? You know the way we we kind of like to time our arrival at the airport to as little time spent wasted in an airport as possible. Uh, should should you give some extra time? I would, yeah, I would. Now the airports are are, are generally quiet, so that helps the that helps the situation. But I would certainly uh, give it loads of time, and you know. Um, Get, get a coffee or whatever else and, and read paper before you go. But I, I would be definitely there on time, just in case. You know, it just takes a couple of people to have wrong forms and, you know, things back up then. But certainly uh, there were four or five flights uh, taking off and cough within the two hours I was there. Yeah. And uh, it was very, very smooth. Looking to 2022, I think the, the minister uh, responsible, Oshin Smith, has been saying in the last 24 hours or so, reading in the paper this morning, the whole vaccine passport and DCC system is going to be with us until at least next summer. Uh, and and it's, it's going to be a reality for, for the foreseeable, isn't it, Pat? It is, yeah. It is indeed. And we, we best get used to it as such. And I think everybody... You know, everybody is getting used to it, and it's like having your—it's like having your passport now. As such, it's a pain in the head uh, to have to think of all these things, and uh, you know, not leave something at home. But as I say, you know, uh, if you have a phone, put it on your phone and yeah. your COVID cert. And it's yeah. the same it, when you look at going if, to if you have the call. if you have the COVID tracker app on your phone, it's it's quite easy to upload yeah. the, the pass into it. Of course, one, you probably have noticed this, Pat, one little niggle of it is you can't just save it from the email into the app. You need to be able to print it, scan it, and then it goes into the app. Like, they haven't made it that easy for people. No, and I, I've been from an older generation. I, I had my techie son do it, uh, Paul, and uh, he, he sorted it out for us. And it's the same, you know, we were out and having a pint or having a meal and, you know, you have it ready there when you meet the people at the door. And there's no big inconvenience, but certainly get someone that knows what they're doing. Uh, were were they fire. looking for the... Sorry to call across you, Pat. Were they looking for the for the passes in Spain when you were out there? Uh, no, they weren't. No, there was... No, nobody had to... Had to I, I saw them not produced. Nobody asked me, OK, you still wear masks and that, but... Remember parts of Spain, you know, there are 17 regions in Spain, yeah. as you know. There are 17 different governments that, uh, running. So different parts of Spain have have different, like there's Corfus down in some of the places uh, where uh, things are locked down at 12 o'clock. Uh, I think it's more northern Spain, certainly down in the south of Spain. It's normal. But then again, it's like there aren't, there, it's not like a, a holiday, like, you know, normal times. Most people that were down there were, were people from Madrid or from coming yeah. down from the middle of the country. Uh, though, there were holidaymakers on, on our flight, but I, I suspect many of them probably ha- had had a friend's accommodation or, or whatever yeah. else. I didn't think many were going to hotels. It's this time in the year, Pat, isn't it? Because you worked, it's an all-year-round business now, that you in the uh, business, the travel agent's business, would be looking to... Next year, well, you'd be looking to the winter first, and then looking to next year. So, deal first with the winter. Do you think that there will be a lot of winter travel to warmer places, and then next summer, do you expect a good return? I do. And for example, the, you know, the Octo- October bank holiday is more or less sold out. Christmas is more or less sold out, as such. And they're they're, they're the times that 
that that sell out and of course they're the most expensive but I mean you know there, there's there'll be great value this side of Christmas as there always is I mean you know I love our country if I'm going off to a small uh, family do a, a small do um, a christening over the west of Ireland and I mean the hotel ordinary hotels is 240 250 a night and you know it's it's uh, now people have to live and but Ireland a beautiful country and everything about it uh, uh, but we are an expensive country when it comes to you know several other European countries, yeah. and when it comes to eating out and and uh, and everything else. Uh, but but certainly uh, from the point of view of 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 travelling in in the winter time, yes, it'll increase. But I I think myself that I think uh, and the airlines uh, realised I think twenty twenty two will be a bumper year. Most people decided that they'd stay at home, yeah. home holidays, staycations, or whatever else. And, uh, you know, I was in a hotel for a cup of tea in, in Cork and it was full full to the door of families at six o'clock. And that's great. That, that's great news. But I suspect that a lot of those people uh, would have been in, in, in faraway places or yeah. Spain or Portugal or France. But look, at uh, everyone is entitled to a piece of the cake. Yeah, yeah. And would you expect, because myself and another family, we've been going away together or crossing over with each other for years now. So we, we, we literally would start talking about it in the autumn time. And we were just saying the other night, do you think that the sales will will come up as they normally would, that the, the airlines will throw up the, the seats to, to sell in advance? I th- I think they will, but the only thing, the only proviso I would put in that PJ is that will the capacity be big enough to cope with it? Because yeah. airlines are, are slowly getting back, and that so it it depends on you know I mean our, our local airport is is Corker or Shannon, and uh, will they have the capacity? Will will they have the frequency? Yeah. Because you know uh, Dublin gets you know eighty eight percent of the capacity. It does. And we, we should. I'm always saying this to you, and you totally agree. I mean, airports outside of Dublin should get more capacity, as such, because they need far bigger help. And hopefully, I think the capacity. You know, the, you know. I mean, Cork have twenty odd routes at the moment, and normally they'd have fifty. And yeah. when that capacity comes back, and hopefully, hopefully, I think we need a bit of competition with a, a third airline uh, as such. And yeah. uh, I don't know who it's going to be, but certainly that capacity will come back. Well, Pat, we're in a lot more optimistic situation than we were this time last last year. And it's always good to speak with you. Thanks very much. Pat Dawson, the CEO of the Irish Travel Agents Association. I mentioned earlier on that today is International Left Handers Day. And I was wondering... Are you really a left-hander if you don't write with your left hand? Because I would do loads of stuff with my left hand, but generally I would write, I would always write with my right. Let us check in. Uh, this is Keith Milson with me now of anythinglefthanded.co.uk. Keith, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Uh, and happy International Left-Handers Day um, to you. The same to you and all your left-handed listeners. Are you a genuine left-hander if you don't write with your left hand? Well, most people are mixed-handed in some ways. So I'm, I'm left-handed, I write left-handed, always consider myself left-handed. But some things I do right-handed. Not very many, but some I do. Um, generally, it's the fine motor skills, so things like writing and delicate tasks that are the most obvious indicators. Mm. So writing is the most uh, sort of standard one you say, if you're right left-handed, you're left-handed. But unfortunately at school, a lot of time, and certainly a while ago, teachers and even parents used to make children change hands. Mm. 
Yeah. There was always a bit of a, a, a bad thing about being left-handed, and people were forced to write right-handed. Yeah. Well, in the uh, Catholic schools here, in the Catholic schools, I remember people being told the devil wrote with his left hand. Absolutely. Um, not true, I'm sure, but there's certainly a, a, a myth that's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of Where years. Where did that negativity come from, do you know, Keith? I think it's a minority. You know, often minorities get persecuted um, because left-handers only make up about 10% of the population. Mm. And that's been standard for thousands of years, as far as we can tell. Um, it's seen as unusual. Anything a bit different used to get um, per, you know, persecuted, labelled as being mm. bad, and depending on your, your views, evil, and so on. Do, do um, we know why it happens? Why are some people just uh, born left-handed? I think it's just that they're lucky. <laughs> well, you would, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> no, but there's not a definitive answer to that. Um, it must be something genetic. Although no one's found a simple gene that causes left-handedness. It seems to be a combination of many things. Yeah. Uh, there's always an argument people make as well, is it nature or nurture? You know, can you be trained to be left-handed if you're born right-handed? Uh, and we certainly don't think that's true. And most of the research indicates that's not true. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, if you, if you make a natural left-hander right left-handed, for example... It can cause all sorts of problems, um, mental as well as physical, yeah. uh, including things like stuttering, for example. Um, there's been lots of examples. I mean, King George in, of England um, was, was famously changed as a child and became a serious stutterer, which uh, plagued him all his life. The King's Speech, marvellous film. Yeah, and that comes, yeah. Up, that comes up in it, actually, very, yes, very does, briefly. Yeah. Uh, Keith... The other thing, too, is there are certain implements that you can't use if you're a left-hander. We live in a right-handed world. We do, certainly a majority right-handed world, and, and most things are designed for that majority. So, for example, a classic example is a pair of scissors, for example, which most of your you know, listeners will be saying, no, what, what, what's wrong with scissors? The thing is, they're designed with the right blade on the top, so that when you cut with them, you can see the cutting line if you hold them in your right hand. And when you squeeze them together, they work like a guillotine and cut things. If you put those in your left hand, uh, you can't then see the line you're cutting, which why left-handed children find it really hard to cut out shapes and things with, with scissors at school. But also, when you squeeze them together, the blades actually are pushed apart. So, for example, the material, paper, whatever, then bends between the blades rather than being cut cleanly. Um, which is partly how it's, it's reasons like this that we get called clumsy and gauche and awkward mm. and all these. It's gauche words. being the French, the French for left hand. Yeah, well, the, the French word gauche actually just means left, um, but it's it's come to mean awkward, clumsy, yeah. a bit different. Well, well, um, well, they're not, and today is the day we celebrate them. And anythinglefthanded.co.uk is the website. You've got plenty more information there. We've got loads of information and a huge range of products all made for left-handers, including all types of scissors, of course. So the, the solution is simple. Just get a pair of left-handed scissors, left-handed pen, corkscrew, tin opener. You name it, it makes life a lot easier. All right, listen, good to talk to you. Keith, Keith Milson of anythinglefthanded.co.uk. That's it. I realise, Fergalby, time has gone, Banjax. Don't forget Premier League Live tomorrow. Uh, back with Dennis Irwin as Trevor's special guest to launch the, the new season. Premier League Live uh, with a now sports or sports extra me membership. Your sport on your terms. Stream only the games that matter to you most with now. And join Trevor 
and the team for Premier League Live online tomorrow afternoon. That's it. No time. In fact, I'm overtime. See you Monday just after nine. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.